Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, we are live. It is time to chat about the great empire of the dawn. Ashai, dragons, the last hero, the first hero. No, that's not a, that's not a thing. There's no first hero. But if there were, we would talk about him. Dragon bonding, dragon horns, ancient bloodlines, the ironborn, the deep ones, just everything. All these things we couldn't fit into the great empire, of the dawn and Ashai episodes. We had so much material. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Got LML here with me. Say hey, my man. Hey, everybody. We're here to answer for all the uh, crackpot tinfoil that we threw out last time. That's right. Yes. You can hold our our feet to the fire for those or uh, stoke those fires as you uh, see fit. So let us do take care of a couple of quick announcements, and then we will move on to the questions. We've got Questions from people that submitted them in advance. We're going to take a few live questions as well. Uh, First announcement is that the former setup we had with live episodes is no longer available to us. Uh, Google and YouTube have changed a few things, so we weren't able to have that Q&A app set up in advance, which is too bad. But, you know, that's the way it is. That's what we got to work with. So we took questions in advance, like I said, through email and through Patreon and through other places. We look at forum questions, but we also simply had a lot of leftover material from the episodes, which were already pretty long. So we'll bring up some of those things as well, as well as a couple of things we didn't think of that were pointed out to us or that we came up with that we missed in our first pass through these things. So quite a lot to cover. I'm sure you're going to have a good time. Let's get started. First off, like I said, a few announcements. We're going to be attending Con of Thrones and Ice and Fire Con next year. That is, oh, both of those are in the summer. And we've got links to those up on our webpage at historyofwesteros.com. If you can attend, definitely do so. Come meet us. We'll be there and hanging out and having a great time and chatting about all fun a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones topics. Cons where there's just all this fandom are some of the best things. It's like being with family you never knew you had. So I highly recommend checking those out and attending if you can. You've got a lot of time to plan for because they're not till next year. As well, I want to announce that we're going to have a podcast only episode, no video, um, a chat episode regarding the Hymn for Spring book that was published last year that featured an essay by myself and Ashea, as well as essays by Amin from Podcast of Ice and Fire, and he will be our guest. He is not a man who gets on video, which is why we're doing it podcast only. And the book's been out for... <laughs> the book's right. been out. Yeah, yeah, no, Amin is the faceless man, right? I remember that. He is. That's right. So we that was a bit of a thing to figure out, and eventually we just decided, oh, well, let's just 
do podcast only. I didn't know how to handle it until uh, we thought of this much simpler solution. So there Amin, we go. Amin is basically like Buckethead. <laughs> Buckethead's bucket serious, dude. When he plays, like you can't, nobody can see him backstage without the chicken bucket on his head. It's it's serious. Anyways, yeah, he is, he is a thumb guy. I, Buckethead is quite unusual. I, have you been to a Buckethead show? I have seen him. Oh, yeah, yeah. I live out in San Francisco, and he plays here a lot. So. Oh, yeah, he's from that area, isn't he? Yeah, yeah totally. That's cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy, but a weird, weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So if you can join us for that Hymn for Spring episode, if you have read Hymn for Spring, you know, maybe it's a, you could send us questions. If you haven't read it, it's, it's a great read among the other luminaries from the community that have contributed to that include Stefan Sasa, Stephen Atwell, a bunch of other guys from Tower of the Hand, and some other members, some other people that I can't think of off the top of my head, but lots of great people. All the essays are good. So if you have questions, you can send those to us and we'll bring those up during the chat. Our next episode, I wanted to make an announcement about that. Um, it's going to be on dreams and dreamers. We were originally planning to make an episode called The Oracles of a Song of Ice and Fire, which was a Patreon voters topic that was voted on in May. And we still haven't put that episode out, so I do apologize for that. The problem was that I couldn't figure out how to handle this episode as I had first planned it. And breaking it down, I decided splitting it off into separate parts is going to make it work. It was basically too much to handle in one episode. Common problem for us here, taking on too much at once. <laughs> so we'll break it down. We'll handle the dreams aspect of the Oracle's umbrella. And that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about the types of dreams, the dreamers who dream them, and how reliable those dreams are. Separate them into categories like supernatural types of dreams and the foreshadowing dreams, which are more like a literary type of thing. So that's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a long time coming, um, and I'll be glad to get that out. And David, what's what's up next on your show? Well, uh, my last episode before The Great Empire of the Dawn started into something I'm calling the Weirwood Compendium. And I started off with cool. Ironborn Myth and sort of meandered my way into the idea of Green Seers. So uh, my next episode will be picking up with the Weirwood Compendium, and I'll be talking about more Green Seers and how that connects to Azor High, which is actually a topic we're going to touch on uh, today a little bit. Right on. So lots of good things coming from both of our shows. We hope you can check those out. And reminder that these episodes are brought to you in part, a large part, by patrons such as Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, and Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, rider of Maslacartho, the green and white dragon that's becoming famous around these parts. Uh, we're unable to show the image live. We haven't figured out how to do that yet. Something we'll be working on, how to handle these live episodes a little differently, especially now that the switch from... Google to YouTube has been made. I mean, they're really linked, but like I said, some technology has changed. We'll figure those things out. A couple of corrections from, from last time. Uh, I mentioned that one in 500 Chinese people has Genghis Khan's DNA. I was selling that short. It isn't just Chinese people. Of course, I think I knew that. I just used that as an example because we were talking about the Chinese. But it's really about one in 500 Asian people, period. And that was pointed out to us by Burke Ramsey. Thanks, Burke, for that. And I need to laugh at myself because I kept I said during the Asha or rather the Great Empire episode that this Q and A would be on Saturday, October twentieth. Well, there is no Saturday, October twentieth in two thousand sixteen. That's clearly not the case. Today is the twenty second. I got the Saturday part right, but not the date right. So, meh. 
Silly me. Sorry about that, folks. Hopefully no one was too confused by that. Hey, look, at least you're not running for president and telling people the wrong date of voter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny, no matter which party you prefer. <laughs> OK, so first off, I want to point out something that's really cool about George R. Martin's world. We've we've all said a million times, and he's said it himself that he is that, that there's two types of authors that there's a gardeners and then there's architects. Architects plan everything out, put it into play, and that's how it goes. Someone like George is a gardener. He writes his stories, and then they grow on him, and he sees where it takes him. And that really applies to this world. When Game of Thrones was published in 1996. The vast majority, even though a lot of the world was built, the world was huge even back then, but so much more of it has been developed since that time. That's, 20, think about it, we're, we're in 2016, that's 20 years for George to expand on his world. 2014 was when the World of Ice and Fire came out, and those are, that's a culmination of so many ideas he's had that he wanted to include in his world that didn't make the books, that it would have been kind of clunky to include in the POVs. So this World of Ice and Fire book is really proving to be a huge, huge addition to the fandom. I assume that most of you who are tuning into this and who really enjoyed our Ashai and Great Empire of the Dawn episodes are fans of the World of Ice and Fire because these are topics that are largely drawn out by those books. If you, if, if you're, if you stick to just the five books, you might not have had as much interest in those topics. Maybe we've turned you on to those a bit. If not, well, still highly recommend The World of Ice and Fire. Never going to stop recommending it. I know that some people think it has some flaws. It does. It's not perfect, but it's great. It's a huge addition to the fandom. What do you think, David? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, The World of Ice and Fire is kind of one of those things that a lot of people thought it might just be the standard coffee table fantasy compendium book sort of just compiled from loose notes. But um, I don't know. I guess I hope most of the readers would give George R.R. R. Martin a little bit more benefit of the doubt than that, because if he stopped what he was doing to write 300,000 words, of which 150 were used in the world of ice and fire, which is what he did, then we'd all stop and pay attention. But it did sort of slip by some people's notice. And I think this theory is probably a really good example of the fact that he put a lot of work into it and there's some valuable ideas into it. Basically there's this whole idea of what's canon and what's not that's come up. And I, I feel like the word can be misleading. Sometimes the, the way to look at it to me is that George, all the new ideas in the world of ice and fire and most of the writing is him and the compiling that Elio and Linda did all ran through George. So I don't know. There's a little bit of an idea that like he didn't write it. So it's not truly important and relevant to the story, but I hope we've, begin to at least sort of dispel that idea and show people that, yeah, just like Duncan Egg, if you really want to understand the story, you should read The World of Ice and Fire. It's like you can read the main five books and never read Duncan Egg and get the story, but you won't really know who Bud Raven is, for example, unless you read Duncan Egg. So you can argue about whether it's canon or not, but the bottom line is there are words that are written by George R. R. Martin about A Song of Ice and Fire and so I want to read them. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I got to say about it. Yeah, that's how we were. When, we, when the World of West Fire came out, we were just all over it. We were, we were reading it, me and Ashea. We were just geeking out constantly, just turning the pages, looking for this and that. Read it yeah. again as soon as we were finished. Listened to it when I was doing chores. Yeah, just, just total immersion. The first thing that stood out to me was the Strange Stone. Oh, yeah, Definitely. that was great. I loved that. 
is so much fun. Shout out to all you guys in the chat room there. There's a bunch of people taking uh, participating in the chat there uh, on the YouTube channel. Lots of questions popping up there. It's hard for us to make to manage some of these questions, but we're going to try to check them out. There's not a great way for us to scroll through and, and find them, but we're going to do our best and try to figure this out to make future Q&As a little more smooth as well since we're adjusting to this new technology. But we got plenty of questions already lined up. So let's get started. That's enough uh, lead in and uh, preamble. We're going to start with our first little section. We kind of divided some of these pre-selected questions up into, into uh, loose subcategories. This main topic will be ancient hybrid magic. We're going to start with that. We've talked at length about how there's lots of overlap in the magical types around the world of ice and fire. I don't mean the book. I mean the series, the world, everything. There's resurrections among different types of magic. There's foretellings of all kinds. There's animal bondings of all kinds. There's lots of these type of magical, I call it magical overlap, and I think that's a fine enough term. So let's talk about some of the specific ways that plays out and some of the ways that, that the things we touched on in the Great Empire of the Dawn episode line up with that. For example, the magic swapping concept we talked about, that there's, there's evidence of trading, particularly at Old Town, between the children and these maybe advanced and even maybe some of the not-so-advanced Dawn Age civilizations, although I suppose the less advanced civilizations would have less to offer, but they would have more to want. <laughs> uh, so if the idea we're digging into here is the concept of magic trading, like they, the, the children teach someone, you know, some of their magic in exchange for whatever magic they have. And this is, of course, somewhat crackpot. We have no direct evidence of that, but there are suggestions of it. And there's a lot of things we can point to that suggest this possibility or at least back up the theory. Uh, the timeline we're given suggests that, remember, as we're given, we don't know that this timeline is 100% accurate, but it's loose enough in this case to fit with what we're talking about here. After the first men started to get along with the children of the forest, i.e. the pact that started, they, they started to stop fighting each other, supposedly. All of a sudden, after the pact, the Age of Heroes starts, so we're told, and that's when we start to have all these crazy, powerful Age of Heroes figures. So magic everywhere all of a sudden. Now, so we wonder if that's not partly because of this magic swapping that these first men started to, once they befriended the children, the children started to share their secrets with them. And then all of a sudden you have these magical humans popping around. Yeah, what do you think about that, David? Yeah, it's not really crackpot. I mean, if you look around in the world of ice and fire, there's pretty, there's a lot of suggestions that the way that first men become skin changers and green seers is by having some sort of infusion of children of the forest blood. And there's the war king that the Starks defeated and then took his daughters, which means inter intermarried or whatever. And then there's the marsh king and there's some other hints uh, that that's the case. So it's not ironclad by any means, but it does seem that we're being shown that the way that first men got skin changer blood or magic was through marrying children of the forest. And some people look at Bran the Builder, the idea that he's a boy or that he's short or maybe crippled as, you know, he was part children of the forest. So, And one of the most blatant examples of overlap is the last hero story. And it's interesting because we like to point out the fact that he's the last hero and that he's the one that supposedly had a key role in ending the long night. And it's the long night that marks the end of the age of heroes. 
Last Hero, et cetera. That fits, that name fits better than we ever would have realized back when we first heard that term. So the point though, is that he got help from the children and he got dragon steel. And these are just, you know, he supposedly got that maybe from the children. How did, how did they get that? Right? Yeah. So it just to be um, technically accurate, what we're told is that he got, after he was in trouble and his friends died and his horse died and his blade broke from the cold that, eventually the children of the forest helped him you know bran exclaims oh that's right the children will help him but we don't know how they helped him and then separately we also know that the annals of the night's watch talk about the last hero having a blade of dragon steel and slaying others with it so you can sort of piece it together and say well he had a broken sword he basically was ass out didn't have any friends or anything then he got help and then at the end he's got a new sword so you can sort of say, hmm, well, where to get that sword? Did the children give it to him? But the children aren't known to work metal. And so, yeah, this is actually your idea, Aziz. I had never thought of this. The idea that Dragonsteel is just a blade from the Great Empire of the Dawn that they literally traded to the children of the forest that they then <laughs> just gave to the last hero. I'm not sure if that's exactly how it went down, but that's... A- it certainly would parallel the the Valyrians starting to trade Valyrian steel for, of course, it seems that they weren't trading it for magical knowledge. They were just trading it for piles of gold, but same difference um, basically. So look, we had one question that was floating around that didn't have a home at all. And now we're talking about it. So let's just bust that out. (laughs) Okay. And and that would be the idea of adding dragon glass to steel. Okay. So the other idea besides, you know, dragon steel is just some sort of, Valerian steel type sword from the great empire of the dawn is the idea that the children of the forest might have helped the last hero forge a new sword. Now we don't think the children of the forest actually were forging the sword, but maybe they contributed the magic or maybe they said, Hey, why don't you add some dragon glass to the steel? So you, you want to read this question here by uh, yeah, bunny. Absolutely. The question comes from our very own Lord Bemmy snuggle bunny, Patreon supporter. And he suggests he he clearly has some knowledge on how swords are made in the real world and go, gave us a really interesting step-by-step process where he shows where the Valyrian steel, where uh, the obsidian would fit into this process. He says, Valyrian swords like Damascus steel swords are both vestibule steel weapons where the iron is placed inside a vestibule with objects such as sand and glass to help draw away impurities from the metal and add carbon when placed under intense heat for several hours. That's, this is, these are one of the main differences that distinguish iron weapons from steel. Uh, when Valyrian sword, he says, with Valyrian swords, I could see them using dragon glass instead of regular glass in this stage of the steel creation, which I think is really clever. And it speaks to the process directly so that it makes it feel more, more plausible. Uh, so, it's possible if we, we were to expand on this idea a little bit, we talk about how Valyrian steel also requires blood sacrifice or something uh, based on what we hear about, you know, the Nissa Nissa Azor Ahai story who literally tempered Lightbringer in her heart. And the Kohoric Smiths nowadays, they use, they tried to use slaves for that. And I wonder maybe... Maybe it doesn't work because, hey, Nissa Nissa is like this, you know, Something important special. person and they're just sacrificing slaves. That's not that's not going to get the job done. What do you what do you think about all that, LML? 
Yeah, I really like the idea of uh, adding dragon glass in as the carbon element to make the steel. Uh, I think that's that's really terrific. I've sort of speculated along similar lines. The thing is that like I always stop when I get too far down the road of like trying to reconstruct Lightbringer with with chemistry and stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go too far. I, I feel like uh, speculating that that dragon glass could have been added is pretty reasonable. That's not too uh, too sciency, but definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, a, r- a related idea is uh, the idea that comets. Uh, carry phosphorus and phosphorus is the greek word for venus morning star and lightbringer and uh, phosphorus can actually also be added to iron to help refine it and make it turn into steel so when we talk about dawn as being made from a meteor uh, and it's obviously associated with sort of the morning ideas which are venus and lightbringer ideas that maybe you know, George is thinking about this comet or meteor that has phosphorus in it that would literally be a light bringer meteor. And phosphorus is white and it burns and you can actually add it to steel to make it sharper just in a very small amount. So right had related sort of magic sword making ideas there. But uh, Lord Snuggle Bunny really chipped in here. That was a good comment. Definitely. And it's important to note the real world obsidian is different than fantasy obsidian. George has specifically said his obsidian is magical, but it still maintains a lot of the real world properties in terms of one of the major things, which is obsidian is really, really sharp. So that is part of why this all fits together thematically so well. I noticed in the chat room, a couple people mentioned a couple name nominated a few characters they think sort of uh, exemplify or show us this whole magical swapping concept. A good example is Marwin the Mage, who isn't necessarily a big magic wielder himself, but he certainly is a dabbler, if not more. He could be a lot more, and he's he's aware of several types of magic. He's been to Ashai. He's been all over. Melisandre is another good example. Someone who we talked about combines shadow magic, blood magic, all these different things that are potentially directly or indirectly related from R'hllor, and all these other things that she's learned that we don't have a category to, to you know, attach to. And quick shout so, out to Yoke Boy's theory about Melisandre being the daughter of Blood Raven. If that's the case, then she might have Green Seer Blackwood blood as well as whatever fire magic that she's using. And the same goes potentially to a lesser extent for Daenerys and Jon, who also have Blackwood blood, like we talked about last time. So there is potentially skin changer, green seer blood swimming around with the dragon blood in there. And of course, Jon Snow has Stark and Targaryen blood. So and that's that's probably the penultimate example or penultimate example of mixing the, the magical blood is Jon Snow. Right on. Yeah, that's true. It, in, in humans, there's the, these really stark examples. Ah, stark examples. That was not on purpose, <laughs> but I'll take it. All right. Our next question comes from our very own patch face of Motley Wisdom, who is a member of our History of Westeros Night's Watch. One thing I've always wondered about are the origin of dragons in the Great Empire of the Dawn. Could it be that they were the result of necromancy used by the Bloodstone Emperor? If so, why were they created? Was it related to the Long Night? Also, Fused Storm Fortress at Battle Isle and Five Forts means dragons predated the Long Night and the Bloodstone Emperor, so they can't have been created by the Bloodstone Emperor. But what about the Great Empire of the Dawn? Okay, so we'll break that into these separate sections and, and you know, handle them individually. David, do you want to start? Yeah, actually, he's almost answering his own question um, because the fact that the Fused Stone Forts exist prior to the Bloodstone Emperor means that dragons 
were being controlled by humans before the Bloodstone Emperor. So that means that the origin of dragons can't date back to the Bloodstone Emperor or the time of the Long Night. It has to be before. But it's possible that the Bloodstone Emperor changed how dragons were used. If the dragons were used mostly for control and power in a more mundane, you know, not evil way, not tyrannical way, you know, think more along the lines of some of the good Targaryen kings who had dragons that that weren't, you know, total scumbags. So uh, a little speculation that I had about this was that the black dragons are some sort of sort of race apart of dragons because if you notice Balerion grows faster than the other two he sort of is aloof and apart he doesn't really hang out with the other two and if you go back to um oh i, I meant drogon i said Balerion. i meant drogon <laughs> drogon doesn't uh hang out with the other two and he's growing faster and bigger even before the other two are imprisoned inside the pit in marine he's already growing he was the first to fly, the first to kill, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, uh, if you look back at the other black dragons, Balerion and the cannibal, they're huge. They're the biggest consistently. So I, I don't know. I wondered if maybe that's what the Bloodstone Emperor did, like he made the black dragon. That would be something. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder because these, the colorations of the eyes that we've talked about is a big deal. And if, that, if these colors indicate families then yeah the dragon we could extend that line of thinking to the dragons potentially it's very interesting uh it's also not terribly well known but the dragons tend to breathe fire that matches their own color which is a that's right odd but cool detail and that's where the name uh blackfire comes from the sword blackfire is i have to think Aegon the Conqueror riding a black dragon who breathes black fire. And he's like, I'll name my sword Blackfire. (laughs) It maybe was named before him, but if not, I mean, it could have been a different black dragon, but either way, I like it. Okay, so let's talk about a new idea. It's not necessarily new, but it's really fun. It's something we've talked about in a few other places. We've talked about it in the Septon Barth episode. We talked about it in the Ashai episode, and that is the concept of engineered species. This is really cool, huh? I'm going to Start us off with a quote here from Septon Barth from the World of Ice and Fire. In Septon Barth's dragons, worms, and wyverns, he speculated that the blood mages of Valyria used wyvern stock to create dragons. Now, that I don't think he's right on, but I think he's got the right idea. I think instead, and LML, you'll you know give me your own opinion on this. I think it he, the Great Empire, the Dawn, is probably who did this. Maybe Valyria did it also, but they may have learned it from the Great Empire. Now, we, of course, have these other theories. Potentially, the bloodlines of the Great Empire were what founded Valyria, and that's how they got their dragon connection. None of these things are certain, so we have to offer multiple possibilities. A lot of them can work together in concert. They could both be true. What do you think about that first bit? Uh, I have to say that I'm about 50-50 on the idea of whether or not dragons were created or whether or not they're just a wild, magical species. Um, Because you kind of like, if you say, well, dragons are so magical and amazing, they must have been created. It's like from fireworms and wyverns. Well, where did, where the hell did fireworms come from? And why can they breathe (laughs) fire? How are they, you know? So who knows? But let's, uh, I do think that the idea that they were engineered is very plausible. And I do think there's a lot of evidence to suggest it. So it's definitely worth considering. And the other option, there's really not much to say, except for that somehow somebody tamed the wild dragons. You know, yeah. and we'll talk about nettles a little bit later, 
But as far as the idea of engineering, most of that information goes back to Valeria, it seems. Agree. Now, here's a quote that sort of speaks out against this theory, but still leaves the possibility of the Great Empire of the Dawn as an engineer of dragons, and you'll see why. Here's the quote. Though the blood mages were alleged to have experimented mightily with their unnatural arts, this claim is considered far-fetched by most maesters. Among them, Maester Vanyan's Against the Unnatural contains certain proofs of dragons having existed in Westeros even in the earliest of days before Valyria rose to be a power. So, again, this corroborates the idea that it was not the Valyrians who engineered dragons because dragons existed before Valyria. So, but it does not close the idea of the Great Empire of the Dawn engineering them. We certainly know of other examples of engineered species. The very concept is not crackpot at all because there's just a lot of it out there. Let me give you some good examples, starting with one that probably none of you are aware of. Uh, well, let me explain. I once commented on one of Elio and Linda's videos about, well, I actually forget what it was about, to be honest, but uh, he, Elio's response to me mentioned offhandedly that the Valyrians created sphinxes. No kidding, for real. And I, I was like, wait, what, man? What are you talking about? Where does that come from? Is that from unreleased material? And he, and he responded, yeah, actually, I guess it was from unreleased material. He, I think he, you know, in his position, he's, he's aware of things that were cut from the world of ice and fire, as well as things that were made, made it into the world of ice and fire. And maybe in his head, they're not, it's not always easy to remember which is which. So anyway, that's pretty cool though, right? The Valyrians actually made sphinxes, but there's more. Yeah, um, do we have like a, a breaking news? <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> the Valyrians made sphinxes. Breaking news from thousands of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another quote that just straight up tells us more about how often this sort of thing happened in Valyria, which gives rise to the possibility that someone thousands of years before Valyria, or even less potentially, did the same sort of thing. The idea of making new species, we can't assume the Valyrians were the first to do this. The largest of the basilisks is the Isle of Tears, where steep-sided valleys and black bogs hide amongst rugged flint hills and twisted windswept rocks. On its southern coast stand the broken ruins of a city, Founded by the old empire of Gis, it was known as Gorgai for close on two centuries, or perhaps four. There is some dispute. Until the dragon lords of Valyria captured it during the third Giscari War and renamed it Gogasus. By any name, it was an evil place. The dragon lords sent their worst criminals to the Isle of Tears to live out their lives in hard labor. In the dungeons of Gogasus, torturers devised new torments in the flesh pits. Blood sorcery of the darkest sort was practiced, as beasts were mated to slave women to bring forth twisted, half-human children. Whoa, right? <laughs> That's serious. And I like that they mentioned blood sorcery, which is blood magic. It's another term for blood magic. Right there, they're calling it blood magic, which, of course, that makes sense. You would call making new species, I guess you would call that blood magic. Wouldn't you call that blood magic? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure lots of people were bleeding. <laughs> during the course of all that yeah that's just brutal right um so the 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 main thing here that you're sort of hitting on earlier is that we think that the valerians are essentially carrying on the magical tradition of the bloodstone emperor given the, the idea is that the bloodstone emperor took the magic of the great empire of the dawn and seems to have twisted it and mutated it and so the valerians 
for the most part, seem to have the very darkest sword of Dragonlord sorcery. And we're going to talk about that later also. So when we see all of this evidence for really twisted experimentation among the Valerians, and then we look back to the Bloodstone Emperor and all the things that he was supposedly into, torture, necromancy, marrying tiger women, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's pretty easy to think that the Bloodstone Emperor might have been the first person to do this kind of stuff. And if I may include another one of my little favorite crackpot tinfoil ideas, that would be that Sothorios is essentially the island of Dr. Moreau. And Bloodstone Emperor was performing his genetic experiments, and Sothorios eventually became overrun with the results of his experiments. And so all those monsters and brindled men are essentially the failed experiments of the Bloodstone Emperor. I could definitely see that. There's all sorts of just creepy, crazy, unnatural-seeming beasts and half-men things in Sothorios. It's just a big smorgasbord of craziness and possibilities. And yeah, Gorgot, total, Gorgot, this total is speculation. Right total speculation, but yeah, definitely. But but very <laughs> cool, very fitting. I like it. So let's see here. I noticed somebody in the chat room here, Siege S mentions half human children, i.e. others too, as in capital mm-hmm. O others. Very good call. That's where we were going next. Consider that concept of magic swapping. Consider this idea of making new species. The If Either and consider that this idea was given to the children, or maybe it came from the children. But I'm gonna. I think it's more likely the children received this technique, for lack of a better word, from the outside, and that's how they got the the ability to make the others in the first place. Assuming that that they are the creators of the others, which seems to be not entirely confirmed, but very strongly hinted at in multiple places. Yeah, non. Uh... Setting aside, to some extent, the TV show information, I would think that uh, my, my general thinking has been that the children of the forest can't be the culprit for any of these original sins, like the hammer of the waters, for example. I don't buy that the children did that. That's the kind of thing that sounds like mankind trifling with magic that maybe he shouldn't and then causing a disaster. That's how I look at Azora High in The Long Night. And I would suspect that if there was... Children of the Forest, or let's say Green Seer magic involved in making the others, I would, I suspect that it would be humans who gained the ability to use that magic and then did something wrong with it. But that's just sort of my analysis of the th- thematic uh, elements of the story, not really based on specific evidence. I like that idea, and it's good, definitely since we're in crackpot territory, we it's it's never appropriate to just settle on one thing and say this has got to be it. You always have to throw out lots of possibilities which is part of why this type of topic is handled best with discussion and naming multiple possibilities, unlike the initial presentation, which we have to keep scripted and tight so that we can get, do all the things we want in the proper order without getting lost. I mean, heck, the episode was already long enough. We, didn't, <laughs> we don't need to get off track when we've already got so much to cover. Well, Aziz, you were talking about the Age of Heroes coming right after the pact, and that's kind of the same idea. Like, after the children of the forest started working with humans, all of a sudden we have these magical sounding humans. And some of those humans were the kind of hubristic challenge the gods characters that I'm talking about, like during God's grief or potentially the great King, you know, challenging the storm God. So that's the sort of theme that I'm seeing here is this, you know, the Prometheus sort of man steals the fire of the gods or defies the gods kind of a theme running around. Right on. That to me speaks of humans gaining access to new magic and then like just sort of 
you know, pushing it really far. I agree. Now, the children also, if we ask ourselves this question, well, what else would they have wanted, say, in trade? Well, we're thinking, considering along the lines of these magic swapping, what else would they have wanted? Did they, was anything else that these mysterious ancients that they were trading with appeal to them? Is that, you know, besides the blade of dragon steel, or maybe they wanted several blades of dragon steel, or maybe this was, maybe they wanted that because they did create the walkers and they wanted a way to undo that, <laughs> or maybe there's this long-standing theory that is very Game of Thrones-y, which is that why assume that the children of the forest were just one united faction? The entire race all felt the same way about all this? I don't think so. It seems more likely that there were some children that favored certain strategies, certain ways of handling the problems of humanity, overrunning them. And some of them may, it may have been a splinter group that created the others, or maybe it was the splinter group that didn't want to create the others. There's a lot of possibilities that are yep. just really fun to think about and really fit with the, with the way George has written the series, you know, from literary and thematic standpoints, from like a history repeating itself sort of way. What do you think about the Robert Strong as sort of a mm. necromancy blood magic concept that sort of loosely relates to all this it's like a corruption of the idea of combining the living i mean the others are basically undead and they raise the dead and that magic exists do you think i mean in other words i guess it's two ways to ask this question like i love calling him the kyborg um, i know i'm <laughs> tired of that um kyborg how much of that is magic and how much of that is some sort of loose like whatever the equivalent of science is in in right. the world because kyborg I, I don't we don't see him do this, you know? So there well, could it's be, obviously there could like spells. I don't know. It's obviously like George's version of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. What's interesting to me about it is it's one of the only times uh, examples of magic that isn't obviously rooted in one of the elements. George seems to work with magic that comes from fire or ice or the water or the storm or like, you know, nature, the trees and the earth itself with the green seers. Uh, but what's Kyburn doing? I don't know. I don't know what force he's using to animate Robert Strong at all. That's I'm really curious about to see what that is. It could just yeah. be George kind of doing one of those, hey, magic's inexplicable, and he's accessing necromancy somehow, and you're just not going to know. That could be, but um, I don't know. There's one other thing I want to say about Kyburn that's come up very recently. There's a great series being done on Reddit right now by user Jen Snow, who is doing comparisons of the very old sample chapters that were released ahead of time compared to the eventual final version. Uh, in the first version of Cersei's first chapter, which was in A Feast for Crows, there is no Kyburn. That was added later. He, he changed his mind about some things and added Kyburn to those scenes. And so she, he, the idea for Kyburn, he was already obviously in the series already. He was in a storm of swords, but the idea for him to have this role alongside Cersei may have been something he came up with during the time before feast was released, but after he had released a few sample chapters, it could have been, or he could have just changed the timing. Yes. He could have just changed the timing, but also interesting is that there was no mention of the Valonqar prophecy in that first chapter. That was all also added later. Uh, oh, that's, wow. That's also off topic, but 
really good. Interesting. Very interesting. Very cool. Those old chapters compared to the new ones, there's some very interesting things because you get to see what George decided to add later. And that can be very telling. So I highly recommend those things. So let's move on to another subject. We got a lot of questions on this topic. It relates to what we've been talking about already. It's the Tiger Woman of Leng. Now, we speculated that the giants and maybe even the children of the forest may have been carried off into slavery and experimented on, like in the, with the blood magic and the species mixing and all that. It's kind of, kind of gross to think about, but it's certainly along the lines of, of things that fit. We saw a crossbreeding of species a lot. We've talked about that. So let's consider this tiger woman that the Bloodstone Emperor took for a bride. Many think she was from Leng, which is the land of 10,000 tigers. And the native Lengi are very, very tall. Well, that part doesn't fit with the children, but they have these large golden eyes that can see well in the dark. And that does fit with the children who do have large golden eyes. They do see well in the dark. And we don't see that anywhere else in the world, unless I'm mistaken. Could you do? Uh, no. Nath. The Nathi nah. have large uh, golden eyes, too. Yeah, you're right. They do. They do. You're right. Okay, one other example of them. And one suggestion is that this is an interbreeding with the, quote, old ones, which is a Lovecraft reference. We've got more Lovecraft references all tied up together at the end of this episode. And they also live underground. So there's a couple of different possibilities there. But it's a really neat idea just mixing this all in together. So let's take some right. specific. Oh, if I ahead. could follow up on that one real quick, this is an idea that's near and dear to my heart. So essentially, the idea is that the Lengi are literally the tallest people on Earth, approaching eight feet tall. They have golden skin and they have these large golden eyes. And we know that there's some race of people that lives in these underground cities called the Old Ones. And essentially, the idea is that the Lengi have such unusual looks, kind of magical looks, that it must be from interbreeding with this with this other species. So if, if you could sort of reconstruct George R. R. Martin's old ones, we can, from the Lengi, we can determine that they probably have golden eyes, they probably are very tall, and they probably have that sort of golden brown kind of skin. So they are, they sound essentially like children of the forest that are very, very tall, which is kind of how I think about them. And the, the other uh, idea that relates to that is Old Ones is a Lovecraft reference, but it also might be referring to the horned god archetype, because uh, which is like Serunos and the Green Man and Pan and Bacchus and a few other variants of that horned figure. One of his main nicknames is the Old One or the Great Old One. Mm. Um, so they're good. I, I have a feeling that George might be like doing a very clever mashup there. <laughs> that's sort of a, a splinter topic there right on okay so here's a question from blue tiger appropriately named for this tiger woman subject and this question comes from the westeros.org forum shout out to the westeros.org forums which is where i got my start in the fandom realized Same that i was here. realized that i was john snow i knew nothing i had all these crazy ideas <laughs> that i um, was quickly disabused of <laughs> but that was so long ago the question is, of all Westerosi races, I think the children of the forest are the most similar to felines with their spotted skin, huge ears, and green, gold, and brown eyes. So if someone brought a child of the forest woman, the Yeetish, the Yeetish, <laughs> wouldn't know how to name her race or their race, so they might name it after a familiar animal from their region, like a tiger. That's a cool idea. Very good. That's on point. What do you think about that, Elmo? 
Yeah, I think that we touched on that idea because in the Old Town section, it's speculating about why these seafaring traders who we think are the great empire of the dawn might have come to Old Town and were said maybe they were came to learn magic from the children or maybe they came to enslave giants. So it's like, well, maybe they enslaved children of the forest or maybe maybe a tiger woman came consensually. Maybe she was a blushing bride and she came back to the great empire uh, willingly. Oh, Bloodstone Emperor, you're so handsome. <laughs> Point is that there's definitely, if we're getting east to west transfer or travel, then we might have the reverse. Um, so it's all the pieces are right there. Right on. Uh, so we have another question here from Malcolm, uh, from a Patreon supporter. That's one of your supporters, yeah? Yes. Right on. Uh, the taking of a tiger woman to wife, half tiger, half woman, reminds me of the Knight's King taking of a half other, half woman to wife. Perhaps our prejudice against the tiger woman should be a similar soul-stealing effect. That's an interesting parallel. Definitely agree that that does sound similar on a lot of levels. And it seems like it's associated, given that the Knight's King and the Bloodstone Emperor are both heavily associated with you know, the long night in, in different ways that those parallels are hard to miss and they're very distinct. There's not a lot of other examples that fit like that. So yeah, I guess that's not exactly a question, but more of a statement. So we don't, we'll just uh, agree sort of um, provisionally. What do you think, Elmo? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I guess I'm a little bit hesitant to, uh, you know, in a song of ice and fire, we've been given a lot of examples of where they always blame if there's anything that goes wrong, they're like, oh, well, that that foreign woman that the Lord married, she must have been a sorceress. And that's why everything's going badly. So it could be that uh, that that uh, something like that would just be propaganda. But I don't know. I mean, Tiger Woman sounds magical. And we uh, I do think that there are parallels in the Night's King story to Azora High and the Bloodstone Emperor. So it's if you're marrying a magical woman, then. Uh, well, okay, let's look at Stannis. Stannis hasn't married Melisandre, but he's sleeping with her and making shadow babies. And as a result, he's being his life force is being drained. So yeah, mm. th- that's yeah, a, actually a very older. good par- mm-hmm. right, and that's a good parallel for the Night's King and the Corpse Queen. Uh, shout out to my friend Dern Durnden, who uh, wrote a great theory about that. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's yeah, it's possible that Tiger Woman could have been could have been that kind of sorceress woman. So a related question, this ties together some of the things we've been talking about. We've sort of answered parts of this already, but there's some new thoughts here as well. This is from Monica Lombardi, also from Patreon. Yeah, one of mine. Lovely, lovely episode, and thank you for putting all Actually, this. Actually, wait. I think both? she uh, sponsors both of us, yeah. Yeah, both of us. Thanks, Monica. Uh, putting, putting all this in together on the Great Empire of the Dawn. When you guys speculated that perhaps the G.O.T. Donians, good term there, carried off the children of the forest, that could be possible with the reference to the Tiger Woman Bride of the Bloodsword Emperor. We assume that Tiger Woman was native to Lang, but maybe the Tiger people were transplanted from Westeros when the Great Empire of the Donians were looking for new places to conquer. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, the, the Bloodstone Emperor was trying to gain magical power. So, and if these powers are linked to bloodlines, which is certainly a very common theme throughout the whole world and storylines, maybe mixing his blood with Children of the Force blood was something he had in mind. Uh, you got the cat size. You got the golden enhanced vision thing. Well, I like to repeat those things because they they really hit home here. It's really just the height thing that doesn't line up so well, but there's obviously explanations for that. 
Yeah, well, the, the height doesn't line up with the idea that Tiger Woman is Langi. Uh, but if she's a children of the forest, then that's not an issue. Um, but yeah, this is this is essentially talking about the same idea that we were just talking about, where we have these characters trying to gain magical power. And Stannis essentially allies with Melisandre because of the power that she brings. And it's very possible that Night's King married Corpse Queen as an attempt to gain himself some some magic access to magic so uh the idea of marrying a children of the forest makes perfect sense because obviously we're they possess magic and we're given the specific idea that humans did breed with them and that's how we got magical humans skin changers and green seers very good yeah um okay so let's we have another related question from susan stacy i believe she's also a supporter of both of our shows um, what do you make of the reference in the world of ice and fire that a woman with monkey tail was instrumental in stopping the long night? Well, here's a quote that we're going to read to set this up a little more. In the Jade Compendium, Coloco Votar recounts a curious legend from Yi-T, which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime. That's the long night, obviously. Ashamed at something none could discover. And that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. Okay. In a Game of Thrones, Danny notices that people from Yi-T sometimes wear monkey tail hats. So, this is meaningful because if we're still seeing Yeetish wearing monkey tail hats, and they did this thousands of years ago in the Great Empire of the Dawn, this is not mere fashion. That would be the longest fashion trend ever. This is a, like a <laughs> ten thousand year fashion fad. So this is something more meaningful. There's there's much bigger symbology, much more. It would be, it's, it's something religious or cultural that's really important. In the real world, the only kinds of symbols that survive that long are ones that people like really believe in, like, you know, like crucifixes or, you know, the Star of David, these long, long running symbols that are associated with religions, things that have lasted for a long time. <laughs> no mere fashion, you know, fad thing. That's, that's, it's, it's too much for that. Yeah, so uh, here we can go the other way with Tiger Woman. And what if Tiger Woman was Monkey Tail Woman? What if she turned on the Bloodstone Emperor and helped bring him down? You know, that's that could be the answer here. Definitely. Um, by the way, folks, if you're listing questions in the comments box there as we go along here, Ashea is doing great work off camera here, gathering some of those questions and putting them up for us to handle. We will not be able to get to all of them. And some of the questions are similar to each other but we're going to get to as many as we can. So hopefully it's not too disappointing if your question doesn't get answered, but hopefully we answer ones that are similar. Okay, but, so here, let's take a second to talk about the name Yintar. You had cool. a note that uh, you thought that it might be a female name because of a certain thing that might be foreshadowing. So woman with a monkey's tail saving the world from a long night could be a hint about Danny with Tyrion as an assistant as a, a tail, if you will, because Tyrion's often called a monkey or a monkey demon or a monkey man. So if Danny has Tyrion as, well, you guys get it, so. <laughs> and Tyrion was supposedly born with a monkey's tail, or a tail. He wasn't, but that was the rumor told about him when he was born. So that's kind of cool that it, it fits that way as well. So we'll see, we'll see. Uh, Tyrion uh, helping Danny is not a bold prediction at all. No. <laughs> But, and him being crucial is also not, you know, a far-fetched at all because he's the one who knows a lot about dragons. So it really is widely predicted in the fandom that he's going to be instrumental in helping her figure out how to handle the dragons, if not riding one himself. 
So, so it could be that Yintar was just the name for Monkey Tail Woman. Maybe yeah. she, maybe <laughs> she was uh, a female with Lightbringer. I mean, it's this we're talking about ten thousand years ago. We can't, we can't be too settled on any of these details. And uh, another thing I'll say about the name Yintar is that Yin is the black side of Yin Yang, and Tar mm. is black also. And I picked up on this as one of the clues that Azora High is actually a villain, which is one of the main sort of foundational ideas of, of my grand theory. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And, and the, also the tar could potentially be an oily black stone call out. Oh, that's neat. I didn't think of that. So that's black cool. tar, you know, is you could translate that name as. Definitely. So, okay, with all that dragon talk, that's a great segue to our next uh, main section. We're calling. Oh, I did a segue. Yeah, nice job. <laughs> Didn't even mean to. A time for dragons. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, there are always a lot of questions about dragons to be discussed, and we may have been covered as many as we attempted to answer with our episodes on this. Here's a question that we uh, we put ourselves we we made we we put our own names here in our episode document. The Great Empire of the Dawn's ability to bond with dragons. Let's talk about that general topic. Setting aside the creation of dragons, whether or not the Great Empire made them or not. They were apparently, as, as in our respective headcanons, the first to bond with dragons. This is where we sort of make that connection with this, the skin changer magic that they may have learned from the children. Obviously, the bond between dragons, at least now, in current times that we've seen from like Danny's point of view, is nothing like the skin changer bond, but it's more than just a little, you know, master or animal. It's more than just a dog that knows its animal. It's, it's, it's animal. More than just a dog that knows its master really well. But that is also in a, something that's present. For example, we see in The Princess and the Queen that when the greens and the blacks would get near each other before they went to war, the dragons would reflect the tension by spitting and, and growling at each other, which was kind of right. like how dogs will growl when they sense their owner feeling a certain way. And when Danny is um, having sex one time, I believe that Drogon cries out when she does. And there's another time when Danny and Drogon have like a, a similar shared emotion, but I can't recall what it is. So mm. it, yeah, I, I do like this idea that the dragon bond is like a mutated form of skin changing or a distant cousin of skin changing. Like what happens when somebody like the bloodstone emperor gets his hands on that kind of magic and twists it, you know, maybe that's how you get the dragon bond, but it's totally speculative. So don't want to de definitely don't want to mislead anybody and say that's likely to be the case, but it's an idea that a lot of people have had in the fandom before us. It's, it's, it's an old idea. Yeah, and there's, it's further confused by the fact that there seems to be multiple ways to bond with dragons, or at least control them. The blood of the dragon thing seems to be the most solid, even though we don't understand, fully understand the mechanism. But there's other things. The dragon, the horns, we hear about horns quite a bit. Not in A Song of Ice and Fire proper until Euron comes along with his dragon binder horn, which we haven't seen in action yet. 
but it's not the first mention of such a thing. We've heard that the ancient Valyrians used horns to control dragons in some way, but clear, but there's none of them in the Princess and the Queen. There's none of them mentioned at all in association with the Targaryens. They didn't seem to need that. And they used other methods, mostly just mundane connections. Basically, hey, I'm a Targaryen. Dragon, are you going to let me ride you? Yes. That's generally how it seems to work. We have zero examples of well, Targaryens dying to, while trying to bond with a dragon. With well, other people, plenty of other examples, but not Targaryen. Right, yeah, okay. I was about to say, it's either yes or it's no, and now I'm going to eat you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plenty of other failed dragon riders out there that were well, eaten or killed or whatever, but no Targaryens. And, uh, in, uh, in The Princess and the Queen, uh, was Rhaenyra's son tried to mount her dragon, and that yes. dragon wasn't having it, and he threw him off. Yes. Um, and we are told that, you know, one person only ever rides one dragon. Uh, but the point is that that's, that would be some sort of a consensual dragon bond that seems to have something to do with magical blood or whatever it is, and yeah. as opposed to the dragon binder horn, which is kind of like a psychic control tool that violates the will of the dragon, which we're going to go into in a second. But read Definitely. this uh, Nettles question first. Okay. Uh, one, one last thing about Joffrey Valerian there, as we're talking about who tried to mount Syrax and was thrown off, which I think is an interesting distinction. Syrax didn't want Joffrey riding her, but it's still different than her just attacking Joffrey for even trying, which is what you would expect when you see these dragons trying, like all these other examples of taming Vermithor and, you know. I, th I think that it says that the dragon might have been familiar with him you know because it was his mom's dragon so that yes. enabled him to maybe get close mm -hmm. but uh, but you're right it didn't just turn on him and eat him so yeah and, and the dragon was behaving oddly too and we because he basically she basically committed suicide by by attacking a huge mob at close you know that was just odd you know it's very hard to explain right. Syrax's behavior all throughout that whole situation there but it's just more of the mysteries of dragons but yeah okay the nettles question this is really interesting we've got Really popular, too. A lot Different of people ideas. ask this. Yeah, because Nettles is the focal point of a lot of the disagreement slash mechanisms for how all this works. And perhaps the answer is, which I think is very likely, that there isn't just one way to bond with the dragon. We've seen three potential ways. We've discussed this blood connection thing that the Targaryens and Valyrians had. We've talked about the horns a bit. But let's talk about the regular old master or human slash beast relationship that probably is how ancient humans first tamed wolves and horses before they were domesticated. Like these, these processes happened in our own human ancient past, but that's right with, with creatures less dangerous than dragons to be, to be sure, but still, uh, how do you tame a wild animal with food? That's the yeah, answer. Absolutely. And this is the thing I think is really interesting about nettles. It's whether we don't know whether she had Valyrian blood or not, it's possible she did, 100% possible she did, but it doesn't seem that her blood had much to do with how she bonded with Sheepstealer. And to me, one of the strong possibilities here is that George is telling us something. The early Valyrians supposedly were shepherds who learned how to tame dragons. Nettles tames a dragon named Sheepstealer by feeding it sheep. This is very possibly a, a, a microcosm of how the ancient Valyrians did things. They just 
keep feeding the man, keep feeding the animal. The animal starts to trust you and it starts to be like, Hey, yeah, I want that food. This is great. I don't have to go hunting. You bring me food. And then eventually, you know, a, be a beast is going to start to look kindly upon someone that does that for them over time. So that could be, that's the most mundane explanation for nettles, but it doesn't have to be the only explanation. So LML, you, you go with the next one here. Well, so I think this is a good example of George uh, liking to provoke fights in his fandom. So <laughs> he's, he's given us like magical explanations for how dragons might exist, but he's also sure to give us an entirely plausible explanation. So for the people who hate magic and don't want to believe in anything fantastical, they can say, oh, well, look, here's this totally rational explanation. And I think, I don't even know if George like deci has decided in his own head. He might just be giving you possibilities so that you can sort of believe what you want. I do think he does that at times. I agree. That's a good point. I mean, you wonder, George doesn't seem to pay a huge amount of attention to directly what the fandom is doing, but he's smart enough to know how to generate some discussion because generating discussion is obviously a, a good thing for any author or creator to have people talking about their work. And right it's a good thing for him to do considering the amount of time we have between books is to give us things to talk about. So good job, George. Nicely done. Okay. So we have another topic here uh, that David in particular, you've brought up mostly on your own that I've given a lot right, of thought yeah. to as well. So I'll set it up and you can knock it down. All right. The question is like the good cop, bad cop concept, or if you watch it's always sunny, the good realtor, bad realtor, uh, Vic Vinegar and Hugh Honey. Um, good dragon lord, bad dragon lord. Are dragon lords always villains? LML, take us away. So this this comes this mainly revolves around Danny. And is Danny gonna be a villain? This is an idea that is definitely hotly debated in the fandom. Uh, because quite frankly, the Valerians were monsters. They were slave lords who practiced human sacrifice and blood magic. Um, so that's pretty bad. And also these genetic hybrid experiments. I mean, they were truly, truly awful people. They were essentially genocidal maniacs with dragons. So the question is, is Danny's, you know, coming home to Westeros going to be more like an invasion? And is it even possible for dragon lord people to be what you might call you know, benevolent or whatever. So we've, this kind of goes back to the great empire of the dawn. And so we're given this idea that the great empire of the dawn, while not perfect, was this kind of high civilization. And then along comes a bloodstone emperor after a period of sort of degrading morals or moral decline or whatever. And then he does all this horrible blood magic and the blood betrayal. So is it possible that before the Bloodstone Emperor, yeah, <laughs> it's possible that, that before the Bloodstone Emperor, we were able to make, for example, dragon swords without blood magic. Or like, were we like able gone, to, yeah. right, were we able to bomb with dragons without using psychic rape horns, essentially, you know? Uh, so I, it's tempting to believe that there's a way to have a magic sword without using blood magic and that a dragon lord doesn't have to be a psychopath. And so to explore that topic, we've compared uh, Targaryens to Valerians because there's a lot of notable differences. Yeah, the, the Valerians, we hear a lot of crap about them being just horrible people with their huge amounts of slaver, slaves that they treat with no regard whatsoever. Uh, com contrast that to, say, someone like Jaehaerys, the old king who was... Oh, widely, widely regarded by the fandom as the best Targaryen king. And by, by a lot of accounts, it's not close. 
And he was a guy. That, he, he's the kind of guy that made roads and with Septon Barth at, the, at his side, he you know made sewers and all sorts of things that made life better for people. Uh, and of course, there's no slavery in Westeros, although there's you know there's serfdom and thraldom, which are well. Really hold on a second. Up. So uh, another good thing about Jaharis to mention is that he was the most gender equal monarch we've ever had because uh, Alassane was credited with all you know a lot of the stuff. There's they actually talk about you know it's. She might have done more. She might have been just as much uh, impetus for many of these projects. Very true. And the people definitely thought about themselves as being ruled by the couple, Jaharis and Alassane. So even that is like very progressive and modern and egalitarian. Well, not egalitarian, but at least more equal. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, they very- even have names for the times when those two were at odds. That's how important she was, that when Jaharis and Alassane had... Right a fight that was an extended period. It was a historical it's event. Like, oh no, it's the gravy <laughs> train stopped, you know, it's the magic con. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that, yeah. you know, when when Magor, who is uh, pretty much the polar opposite of Jaehaerys, is, is his relationship with his many wives is <laughs> a, oh, bit, a bit different. They didn't have a say in anything. Right, so uh, let's, so comparing, let's continue with this comparison of Valeria and the uh, House Targaryen. So one of the things that we noticed is that House Targaryen doesn't seem to bring a lot of Valyrian technology with them. They don't make any uh, Valyrian steel. They don't make any fused stone. Uh, They might have glass candles, but they do not have uh, dragon binder horns. So no horns, no fused stone, and no Valyrian steel. And we hear all this stuff about Valyrian sorcery and this and that. We don't really see that either. We have no, like, really strongly confirmed ideas uh, or, or suggestions. Well, we have suggestions of, like, Visenya, for dreams. example. The yeah, dragon the dreams, dreams. You're right. about it. The dreams are a pretty big one. But Visenya was supposedly dabbled in black magic, blood magic maybe. But really, it's there's just vague hints of that. Nothing specific. Yeah. No, like, known outcomes from use of this magic. So a lot of it could just be rumor. It doesn't even have to be, you know how it is. We all know how it is in, in Westeros. Whenever powerful women are often like, oh, well, if she's a powerful woman, she must be using sorcery because... She's a witch. Yeah, she's a witch. We found so, a witch, Mary Banner. It's a very common sentiment. It's, uh, it's obviously... She has got a wall. <laughs> <laughs> throw, so, her into the, throw her into the pond. Throw her into the pond. Build a bridge out of it. So um, let's put a cap on that before that goes too far. So uh, the idea is that there's we're give, there's two possibilities for why the Targaryens left so much of this uh, stuff behind. And not only the magic, but also the slavery. They didn't do the slavery either, or the genetic experiments. So it's tempting to say, well, maybe the Targaryens had some sort of moral epiphany. And we're like, let's leave all this blood magic stuff behind and move to Dragonstone. And they had, if, if the tale of Danny's the Dreamer foreseeing the doom is true, then they had 12 years to prepare. And so maybe they left that stuff behind on purpose. The other possibility is that they actually didn't have access to that magic. They, that perhaps the various types of Valyrian sorcery were specialized out to different families. And we do have some reason to believe that the Targaryens were primarily associated with war dragons. So let's go ahead. I was going to read the quote. Yep. Um, We have this quote that shows maybe indicates what the Targaryens were good at in terms of how they understood dragons. We want to introduce a concept of, well, let me read the quote first. I don't want to introduce the concept. <laughs> From, this is Jorah talking to Daenerys in A Song of a, a Storm of Swords. This is her first chapter in A Storm of Swords. A dragon's natural span of days is as many times as long as a man's, or so the songs would have us believe. 
But the dragons, the seven kingdoms knew best were those of House Targaryen. They were bred for war, and in war they died. It is no easy thing to slay a dragon, but it can be done. So the idea that we want to introduce here is a possibility that there's a lot of ways to use dragons. Dragons are not so easily told what to do. So there could be some specialization within these 40 or so dragon rider families that we hear of. Maybe some of them were better at using dragons in certain ways. The tale of Danny's foreseeing the doom is true. Why didn't, like David says, why didn't they act in advance to preserve more of this Valyrian magic? It could be that they simply didn't have it in the first place because it's not their area of specialization. Right. Compare so, that concept to the lost wisdom, the round tower builder's wisdom thing that we talked about in our Great Empire episode and, and understand that concept. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I was going to say is that this this quote directly suggests that dragons can be bred for different purposes. And if you think about it, it really couldn't be any other way because every other animal that humans domesticate or breed, they use different ways. There's a racehorse and there's a plow horse. You know, there's and the same goes with dogs. There's the the, the greyhound that wins the race doesn't necessarily isn't the seeing eye dog. Okay. So if dragons are smart animals and they're being domesticated by humans, it's logical. They would uh, take them for different purposes. So think about it this way. Think about uh, making roads with dragons. You need dragons that are fairly calm and controlled and will fire just when you want them to and not get impatient with making hundreds and hundreds of miles of a straight fucking road. Pardon my French. So <laughs> it's the idea of using Balerion the Black Dread, for example, to build a road for like six months doesn't really seem feasible. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's so, wrong. Yeah. I have to think that the people who built the dragons that were good at making roads and fortresses probably weren't the quote unquote war dragons. And then the other the other clue we have about that is uh the Red Queen, right? Yes, so. Melis the Red Queen, who got lazy over time uh because she was fed whenever she wanted and there was no war in the seven kingdoms so she just sat around and now to be clear there are still dragons if you you know poke a dragon even a dragon a road building dragon if that was really right. a thing that's still gonna you know bite your head off let's not let's right. be clear but there's still a difference between a dragon that's with that kind of capability and the dragon that can you know dive bomb a group of soldiers or melt a tower's ca a castle tower or something like that. There's, yeah. You know. The idea is that even a war dragon, if it's not made to hunt for 20 years, it will grow sedate and calm and just generally more mellow, more used to people. And then it wasn't until she was finally roused that she became fearsome again. Mm. Uh, but if you think about a breeding program over generations, uh, encouraging dragons to be docile, then you could absolutely create dragons that are for a different purpose. So definitely like for just an example of another example from the princess and the queen, Damon Targaryen's dragon Caraxes was a lot smaller than Vagar, but Caraxes was the most recently experienced dragon in terms of war. Vagar may have had more war experience in her life, but it wasn't recent because Caraxes mm. was engaged in war on the Stepstones just prior to the Princess and the Queen, just prior to the Dance of the Dragons. Caraxes had a lot of recent war experience, had been recently used in war, was more vicious, was more aggressive. Vagar was much larger, but that was enough to make them equally matched to the point where they killed each other. Vagar so, was a rusty dragon. 
<laughs> Rusty and hoary. Yeah, hoary and white. Yep. So, but still clearly capable because of her great size. So, so to sort of wrap that up, I guess the idea is that it's possible that when the doom fell, the Targaryens only had war dragons. They didn't have road building dragons. They didn't have the sword making dragons. Or it's possible that the sorcerers who own the various kind of dragons possess unique knowledge. So the sorcerers that are in charge of making steel swords might not be riding dragons going to war. And so if you only have war dragon riding family like Targaryens that survive, the other knowledge was simply lost. And that's what you were sort of talking about with comparing the idea that we have these old round towers in Westeros. And then all of a sudden we have first men who supposedly don't know how to build round towers. It's like, well, somebody used to know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, expand a little more on the idea of, of the, them choosing to leave some of these things behind. As you ah, said, they yes. may be turning, turning more good. <laughs> the good conquerors. <laughs> so just, we've already talked about it, but just to quickly sum up. Yeah. We're given strong clues that Valerian steel making involves human sacrifice. They left that behind. They left slavery behind. They left the dragon binder horns behind, which, as I said, are not, I mean, they're just not very nice. They're basically overriding <laughs> the free will of the, uh, of the animal. So, and then they also gave up the Valerian gods and adopted the worship of the seven. So everything about that sort of speaks of a willingness to move on and sort of leave the past behind, establish a new identity, and that could have been purely political, less moralistic, but you can certainly speculate about a moral choice because they left behind all these things that are basically the worst parts of the Valerian Empire, and they only took the dragon riding with them. So that's, uh, that's, uh, it's tempting room for speculation, I'll just say that. Definitely. And that gives and that gives us the ability to believe that perhaps Daenerys won't be a violent psychopath, which is, you know, attractive because I kind of like Daenerys. Yeah, me too. And I, I'm not I, I certainly don't, I'm not one of those people who think she's going to go full villain, although I think she'll do, you know, like she has in her arc so far. She will do things that she thinks are good that will backfire on her and they'll actually cause a lot of harm. But yeah, she's she's making eggs, breaking eggs. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, she she means well, but that's you know that's the way it works. You don't always get what you, you, meaning well doesn't always mean doing well. So essentially, when you put it all together, there's you start to see a big contrast between the Valerian slave lords and the Targaryens, who seem to be uh, just a little bit less crazy. So it's possible that we could project that onto the great empire of the dawn and identify them more with the more benevolent kind of dragon lord but we'll okay. see well, let's move on to the great empire of the dawn and dragons and dragons as instruments of conquest little uh use our imagination here a little bit and then uh, as we lead into some more questions Shay is telling me that we've got a lot of questions that have been added so we'll try to get to as many of those as possible now if we're thinking back to ashai and we talked about how it stands out because of its size and how it would have needed, you know, food supplies brought to it. Imagine dragons, not the band, but (laughs) the beasts, imagine them in place, enforcing some sort of blockade on Asha, keeping it from getting its food supplies. It's a lot more powerful than a naval blockade. And whoa, what kind of power would that be? If you're able to hold that over a huge population and say, hey, you guys aren't getting your food unless you do what I want. That kind of thing. 
those are what he sort of be like war dragons, siege dragons in a sense. <laughs> it's a subset of war dragons. Uh, no, nah, it's pretty much the same thing. But 170 years ago, when the Targaryens ceased to have dragons, they've got them back now. I mean, imagine all these things, these technologies, these, these uses, these different ways of breeding dragons for their specialties could easily be lost. And I want to talk just for a second about the idea of how you use dragons and how risky it is to use them in war. The Dance of the Dragons saw a lot of dragons killed, as we saw. Most of them were killed by other dragons. And quite often, they were put at risk that was not wise. Damon Targaryen, the most aggressive of all the Targaryen commanders, well, maybe not more aggressive than Aemon Targaryen, but very aggressive, was quick to point out that it's that you do not risk dragons, you know, lightly. Even he, who was a you know, very aggressive, right, right. bloodthirsty guy. So Aegon the Conqueror, who the only person... Or rather, the only, you know, no Targaryen before Aegon considered or made any real attempt to conquer Westeros. So part of that is just that, you know, he was the first guy to have that kind of ambition. But mostly, you got to have the right dragons doing the right things. And he only used all three dragons once in the entire conquest. They were spread out. They he was much he was he preferred to use soldiers when he could because he didn't want to put the dragons at risk. He wanted to have them kind of hanging over like, hey, anytime I could bring these out. He, they were more it was like a fear tactic. It's you know more than anything. Once people saw what the dragons could do, they didn't fight much anymore. That's why Torin knelt. That's why when the field of fire happened, there was very little resistance after it. Yeah, that's so. actually another good example of a contrast with Valerians. Like the Valerians are like, oh, you want to mess with us? Well, I'm going to wipe out your whole civilization then and yeah. enslave your people and burn your cities. Whereas Aegon applied just enough force to get submission. And then he immediately extended the hand to those who had knelt. So that's that's a pretty big contrast. Now contrast that to the ancient Valerians who had so many dragons that they could afford to lose some. I mean... You know family, individual family, wants to lose any dragons, but we heard that 300 dragons were sent from the Freehold to face the Roinar to fight Prince Garen the Great in that war. Even if that number is exaggerated, they could certainly have a few, uh, you know, afforded to lose a few without it impacting their ability to inspire fear in everyone around them because they had dragons. But Aegon, three dragons, got to be careful. Uh, obviously, later they had more dragons and that helped, but, you know, it's, it's an important concept. Okay, let's move on to what we're calling the East-West Connection. More concepts uh, related to bloodlines and ancient bloodlines making their way into Westeros, perhaps from the Great Empire of the Dawn and other ancient sources. Question from a Bourgeois Nerd. Maybe not yeah, a question. What's let, me read the, let me read this one. This is great. I, I love this Okay, one. go I'm for it. Up. So, Bourgeois Nerd says... Uh, in talking about the Durandans and Storm's End, it's always struck me that they have an odd resonance with the Iron Islands and its religion. The Drowned God is the one whom the Iron, born, or the Iron Men worship, but it is not the only God in their religion, as the Drowned God is consistently at war with the Storm God. Now, Elenai, from the Durand Durandan story, was the daughter of the Sea God and the Goddess of the Winds, who in their fury sent storms to destroy Durand Durandan, or Durand God's grief. Uh, she's often depicted as a mermaid, but that much uh, that might just be fan speculation, like the ones the Iron Men expected to be their wives in the Drowned God's halls, or I would just add, like the mermaid that the Grey King took to wife. Um, so could the Drowned God and the Storm Goddess, gods don't have to conform to their gender notions of mere mortals, of course, uh, <laughs> be Elenai's parents, perhaps the original gods of at least one group of first men, 
before they became old gods worshipers. Uh, the source of their enmity is the fate of their daughter or just a bad relationship. It's interesting, though, what, uh, if anything, uh, does it have to do? Oh, he is not sure. <laughs> so he's just asking what's, you know, a lot of people have noticed that um, the matching sea and wind goddess religion, and it's not actually just the, uh, the, Dern, uh, the, the storm lords and the ironborn. There's also the people from the sisters who believe in a lady of the waves and the Lord of the skies, uh, which is the same kind of dichotomy. So I, I do think that he is on the money here and that thinking of Elenai as a mermaid is the right thing, because if she's a goddess that comes from the sea and the wind, uh, that's, that's an aquatic goddess of some kind and aquatic goddesses are pretty much always mermaids. So I think that's a very good idea. I think the connection is more symbolic than literal. But I do think that the stories of the Grey King and Durin God's Grief are very much in parallel. And that's actually a topic I'll be talking about in one of my upcoming podcasts. Right on. So if you want more on that topic, check out LML's episode on that. Um, yeah, very good. It's the basically, to summarize a little bit of that, this, the idea of the Storm God, a Storm God being casually mentioned in this ancient legendary slash mythical story that has nothing to do with the ironborn yet the ironborn nowadays the storm god is like their version of satan uh so that's kind of a hard connection to completely ignore and it does seem that there just be some uh some connections there so good call there right, actually yeah let's there's one more idea associated with that which is the idea of what was the religion of the first men before they adopted uh the weirwood religion of the children of the forest and one of the possible older religions is this aquatic religion because we see it from uh, the Iron Islands all the way across to the sisters and the Riverlands uh, also talk about sending their dead to watery halls, the Riverlanders, uh, when they set Hostotoli's uh, little funeral bark on fire. So yeah. it, definitely it seems like that's one of the old religions. I just wanted to note that. All right. Well, let's talk about a little more about the high towers. We got a couple extra tidbits about them that are worth mentioning. We, of course, speculated on what they might look like. It's still sort of kept... A bit hazy by George, but we've certainly got some strong suggestions, if not direct evidence, that there are some silvery gold-haired high towers. Uh, we don't know about their eye color so much. Here's a couple of clues that we didn't include in the in the last episode that are worth mentioning here. Now, Alicent Hightower, two things about her. One is that Jaehaerys, she took care of the old king when he was senile and failing. And at several times, it's mentioned in both the Rogue Prince and the Princess and the Queen. Well, I'm sorry, it might not be those two. It's mentioned twice. One of them is in, maybe one of them is in the World of Ice and Fire. Anyway, the point is, he multiple times mistakes her for one of his daughters. Now, it's possible he's colorblind and old and he can't tell her hair color. But if he can see colors and she, her hair color is, you know, silvery gold, that's a, that's a, that would make it that mistake make more sense. However, the flaw in that idea is that Allison is depicted with brown hair in the world of ice and fire. And we know George was pretty specific about a lot of what art made it in there. However, the possibility remains. Second of all, it's interesting that the high towers have been chosen as brides for the Targaryens a couple times, along with the Danes at least once. Magor's first bride, he had a lot of brides. It's easy to forget that because he had so many, but the first one, and this is the actual first time a Targaryen married a non-Valyrian 
person, meaning they only married Targaryens and other Valyrian, uh, Valarians. You know, that's, the name is always so difficult when out loud. <laughs> Valarian, Valyrian. Valarians. So the, the first time they married someone that wasn't from the blood of old Valyria was when they married a Hightower, which was Cerise Hightower marrying Magor. That was his first of his six wives. And you wonder if that was because of her look. Uh, also, the High Septon at the time, this probably the same High Septon that's told uh, that prayed and surrendered to Aegon, and the one that crowned him was the uncle of Cerise Hightower. So the first High Septon uh, that was around when Aegon conquered the Seven Kingdoms was a Hightower himself. But this is sneaky because the High Septons always give away their name. But George mentioned that in a live reading once, very, very casually. So I hold on, held on to that detail. And, so good. Uh, Cerise is depicted with uh, blonde or pale hair in yeah. the world of Ice and Fire. So that's a point in that favor. And the other thing I was going to say about Alicent is even if she did have brown hair, perhaps she had those kind of fine features because Jorah says Liness reminds him of Danny and We've discussed that, you know, Liness maybe didn't have silver hair, but maybe she had the similar type of features. Definitely. So there's a lot of room there. I think George is George is going to have no choice but to give us the high tower looks in the next book because yeah. Sam is there. There, those high towers that are going to be seen by Sam. They're going to be dealing with Euron most likely. So we'll have that. That question should be settled eventually. Lord, Lord Layton's going to call up the deep ones, uh, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, let's see. Next question here. We have a question from Lord Pepsi Cups on Westeros.org. I know you've had several conversations with Lord Pepsi Cups. Yeah. Names of Danes, high towers. Hint at change name. You wanna you wanna um, take yeah, this? Yeah. So I'll just. It was just more of an observation that. Um, uh, let's see. So Dane translates to worthy in. Um, oh gosh, it's it's some it's some variety of old English, I guess. Uh, that Dane okay. translates to worthy. But essentially, he's saying that Dane and Hightower are both descriptive names, meaning the people that live in the Hightower or the people that are worthy. And of course, when you think of the Danes, their whole thing is about only a worthy candidate can wield dawn and be called the sword of the morning. And it's potentially there's the idea that maybe uh, they became the, in, the guardians of the sword of the morning after the original last hero did his thing. And maybe the last hero was a Dane or his genetics gave rise to House Dane, etc., so the idea is that Hightowers and Danes both might be Great Empire of the Dawn descendants, and they both have names that are descriptive. That could be a clue about people who changed their names, essentially, when they came here. Like, they, had, they weren't called Hightowers before they built a tower, and the Danes might not have been Danes before they proved themselves worthy. So I just... I thought that was kind of a nice little clue. That makes sense. And, and remember, the first men naming conventions typically are very simple and descriptive, strong. Uh, Stark, uh, Forester, you know, right. things like very straight for Hunter. So Hightower fits that mold pretty well, but Dane doesn't. Dane is not, like you said, it's not a direct word that has straight up meaning that describes who they are. I also like to think of the, uh, the possibility that the Hightowers didn't name themselves. It's just they built this tower or took it over or both and the people around them were just called them the high towers because that's Lord the of the high tower yeah. became Lord high tower or something. And, and it just stuck. You know, I had to go, let's just go by that. So people are calling us. We may as well go with that. Um, I, so I do want to pick a bone with you there though. Actually, Dane could be descriptive if it's connected to the word day or okay. if it's just a permutation of dawn over time. 
Fair uh, point. Definitely. Definitely. Or if it's George is hinting at the, the idea of worthy as a description. So that's a great point. I think I even mentioned that in our Dane episodes and then kind of forgot. <laughs> so good <laughs> call. Good, ca- good catch. <laughs> okay. So then our good friend, Monica Lombardi from Patreon again, uh, asked about the church of starry wisdom being linked to the starry sept in old town. And this is another one of my favorite topics. So she says, when examining house Hightower, did you guys consider the connection between the Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists in port towns, and whom the Bloodstone Emperor is considered the first high priest, and the Starry Sept in Old Town, which is obviously a port town? Uh, she says, I know that the Starry Sept is supposed to be uh, supposed. I know what the Starry Sept is supposed to reference, the seven-pointed star and the crown of stars that Hugo Hill wore, but that can't be the only meaning for the name of the Starry Sept. And I tend to agree, and there's a good clue that we might have some starry wisdom action in Old Town. And this comes from A Feast for Crows. It's the Sam chapter. You want to read this? Yeah. He has a mocking name for everyone, thought Pate, but he could not deny that Marwyn looked more a mastiff than a maester, as if he wants to bite you. The mage was not like other maesters. People said that he kept company with whores and hedge wizards, talked with hairy ebonies and pitch black summer islanders in their own tongues, and sacrificed to queer gods at the little sailors' temples down by the wharves. Mm. Men spoke of seeing him down in the undercity in rat pits and black brothels, consorting with mummers, singers, sellswords, even beggars. Some even whispered that once he had killed a man with his fists. When Marwyn had returned to Old Town after spending eight years in the East mapping distant lands, searching for lost books and studying with warlocks and shadowbinders, Vinegar Valen had dubbed him Marwyn the Mage. This is the second person with the nickname Vinegar in one episode. <laughs> Who's the other one? Oh, I mentioned the It's Always Sunny reference. Oh, that <laughs> flew actually, by me, sorry. Not actually a song of ice and fire. <laughs> so the, the point here is that Marwyn is dabbling with glass candles and looking for dragon lords and Azora High and absolute going to a shy. He's interested in all this old magic. And what else is he doing? Oh, he's going to little sailors' temples down by the wharves that have queer gods. I've always thought that was like a subtle wink-wink to the idea that Church of Starry Wisdom persists to this day in port cities all around the world. And of course, that makes sense because uh, sailors have always been prone to astrology and astronomy based belief sets because, they, of course, they use stars to navigate. It's like their lifeblood is astronomy. So I see someone here named uh, Melanie Patrick made a great joke in the chat room here say, Marwin totally had a coexist bumper sticker on his horse. I <laughs> did. <laughs> Good call there, Melanie. You are totally right. <laughs> okay, moving so on. I, I, well, actually, I'll put a little coda on this. So, Not moving on, okay. <laughs> so the idea is that is, you know, starry wisdom, starry sept. So the if we look at the faith of the seven, it's also based on astronomy, okay? We, the, the seven are associated with seven wanderers who are planets, except for the stranger, who might just be the night sky in general. Uh, and then we've also got the hero, Huger Hill. Now, Huger Hill, the story goes, uh, I guess it was the father that pulled down seven stars from heaven for his crown. So we've got the idea of stars falling from heaven. And we've got the idea of a person who's becoming, is gaining divine authority and elevating his status through gaining power from the stars, if you will. So it's, there's some very similar loose themes that are going on there. And we know that the Starry Sept and the Faith of the Seven uh, has been centered in Old Town since the Andals came over. So 
there you can't draw a direct line of connection between the Andals and the Bloodstone Emperor, but you do have to wonder if maybe they infil they've infiltrated the religion or if uh, you know, there's there's some sort of more tenuous sort of shadowy link like that. Mm, right on. Like okay, maybe the faith. I'm sorry. Maybe the faith picked up the more astronomy based ideas after they came to Old Town, for example. Sure. Yeah. That's their religion has possible. changed over time. Yeah, it's been thousands of years. Some sort of change is, only makes sense. It would be a little odd for them to keep everything the same way. And we've all seen in the real world that it's not uncommon for religions to push other religions aside by sort of building on top of them. Like, say, taking a holiday that they already have and, and taking it, you know, adopting it. Like, there's been a lot of holidays put on December 25th, for example. Um, that kind of thing. So let's move on to a question from Helena Khan. Oh, yeah. That's a good this one. is a good one. This is a connection. Basically, the qu question is getting at the connection, the possible connection between the others and the Lion of Night's demons. The question reads, I know George R. R. Martin said Essos and the lands of Always Winter are not connected by land, but really, when I look at the map and imagine it folding to a globe, the far eastern part of Essos and the lands of Always Winter don't seem far apart. What is your speculation about how people from Essos even knew of the others? Is there a connection, maybe even a relation or a similarity between the others and the Lion of Night and his demons? Or did the Long Night simply last so long that the word of its horrors had time to travel around Planetos? What do you think, LML? Well, we do know that the Long Night was experienced all over the known world. That's fact. It wasn't necessarily a tale that spread. It seems like everybody has this story. However, I... When we're talking about the Lion of Night's demons, it's like, okay, well, just look at the story. The story is in Westeros during the Long Night, ice demons came and made everybody's life a lot harder. The story is basically the same in the East. During the Long Night, the demons of the Lion Night came out and punished everyone in wrath. So it's a very obvious connection to make. The question is, is it a literal connection uh, or is it the kind of thing where during there was something evil about the long night that made demons arise in different lands and they were ice demons in the north because they were in the north and in Essos maybe they were fire others or shadow others or the lizard men or who knows. Um, there's but basically there's been a lot of speculation about this. Yeah, basically, you know, if you want to go with a mundane explanation, which is hard to do because this is already very supernatural territory and it's hard to apply mundane thinking to something that's very supernatural, very magical and very mysterious. You can say that the long night, because it was permanent darkness, enabled some of these beings to gain strength. The others supposedly came out of the darkness. We're sort of told that they brought it with them, but really I'm more inclined to believe that they are more empowered by the extended darkness rather than any kind of cause of it. I agree with that. So, and it seems to be that in all the examples we see of them, the few examples we have so far in the series of them appearing, it's always at night. And it's not like they brought that night. It's just a normal nighttime that they show up during. Right. So, and they haven't invaded yet. And the lights haven't turned out yet. And this is something yeah. I love to talk about is that if we are going to get a full scale invasion of the others, which is the ultimate Chekhov's gun of this story, then we have to turn the lights out somehow. We have to find a way to cover up the sun so the others can do their thing, which is why I, I predict that we might have the comet coming back to cause more meteor action, but we won't that be something. Some sort of way to have a new long night. If it's not right. a comet, something. We were all pretty convinced that there will be a long night and it will be defeated. Um, 
by our heroes, hopefully, <laughs> but but at a high price, I would assume. But you, your idea is good in that the something about the darkness of the long night, about hiding the sun, empowers certain kinds of creatures, and they may be different in different lands, and they arose in different places. I think yeah, that's have, a pretty safe conclusion. It's like they can operate twenty four seven instead of having to sit around and hide during the day. I mean, and that's that's even if it doesn't give them magical empowerment, it's just logistically they are able to do more because they can operate all you know whenever they want instead of yeah. having to hide from the sun. God only knows what the long night was like in Sothorios. Yeah. <laughs> Just picture Wesley Snipes and Blade. Imagine how much more powerful a vampire is if he can walk around during the day <laughs> and doesn't pay his taxes. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's unrelated. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the long night since we He just should run for president. <laughs> Always bet on black. Um... The Long Night. So let's talk about the question. We get a question from Michael Dugan, who, or Duggan, apologize, I'm not sure which it is. He has some questions about the seasons and the Long Night. He wants us to discuss the idea that the Long Night is the reason or one of the co-symptoms, whether there was a meteor impact or whatever, that it caused the erratic seasons, which I think is very possible, very likely. And he suggests a piece of evidence that we hadn't considered that's rooted in one of our own ideas that we didn't maybe take quite far enough. And again, we come back to Ashai and the food supply problem with Ashai. Can you really imagine Ashai being built during a time when the seasons were erratic given their food needs, their constant need to get food from outside sources? How can you prepare for that with these erratic seasons? That city would never have been built in the first place given if the seasons were out of whack. I think that's a very good point. So like you said, it's not exactly a question, but it, it fits into the picture that we've been trying to paint very nicely. Do you have any, uh, anything to add on that? I think that's a, a good observation. And I, I want to quickly agree that I would, I think that the seasons were thrown off by whatever it was that caused and happened the long night, because the long night is fundamentally a disruption of the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of the day and the night, which are very parallel. And so thematically, I mean, that's like we have this big disruption of the seasons and then ever after the seasons are messed up. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And as far as the shy goes, yeah, um, it may be that uh, the regular seasons that the song the Planetos has had for however many thousands of years is the reason why Westeros is stuck in a medieval land, uh, sort of technology or whatever and can't advance. And it might be the reason why we don't have any cities anymore that are anywhere near as large as a shy because you simply can't support that dense of an urban population when the food supply is so irregular and every six or 12 years you have to survive a four year winter. Um, yeah. So. It's just storing that much food is just what, you know, and without knowing how much food you're going to even need to store that kind of thing. Yeah. It just doesn't work. It's hard to prepare for And if you look farther in the North, the cities are always smaller because the, the worse your problems are with food, like it's a, it's definitely a limit to density of population. Mm. If a shy was the largest city in the world, which specifically relied on imports of food, then they they would have the most difficulty of anyone if the seasons were to be irregular. So right on. Okay. Let's talk about some other, this is a brief one. We, we mentioned like Sarnor and even Valyria as a possibility. And we talked and the Yitish and all these other cultures that formed 
after the long night faded and civilization was able to get going again, we didn't mention all the possibilities because, again, we wanted to not go too deep into that particular rabbit hole, but we should, this is a good time to throw out a few other possibilities. Um, Karth is a good one. Karth, the Kothai are a very ancient civilization. They claim to be about as old as the ancient Giscari, the ancient Yitish, and all that, and the Fisher Queens of the Silver Lake, or wait, Silver Sea, rather. And these are all possible formations from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Any of these new civilizations that formed and had, like, magical aptitude or strange things going on with their genetics seem like a decent candidate. Of course, again, these are all just, we're just trying to connect dots where they might not be connected, but the evidence supports these possibilities very uh, strongly. Did you have any other suggestions there, Elmo? Any other particular civilizations that stand uh, out to you? Talk for like 30 more seconds. I'm pulling up a great quote from okay. the chapter, actually. I think uh, Nath is a possibility, given what we talked about with their strange eyes and just the strangeness of their their existence in general with their butterfly god and the fact that everyone that goes there gets sick and dies and that they're such interesting, you know, supernatural people. That's all. Whatever's going on there might have some ties. And of course, we come back to Sothorios and the islands and the Basilisk Isles uh, north of it and all these strange possibilities for, you know, offshoots from the Great Empire that might not be human uh, or partly human. These are all part of this, you know, sphere of possibilities here. Okay, so here we go. Uh, we're talking Karth now. Now, this is Danny in the House of the Undying. The very last room that she sees, this is the fake undying that looks all glorious right before she sees the real blue shadows. It says, beyond the doors was a great hall and a splendor of wizards. Some wore sumptuous robes of ermine, ruby velvet, and cloth of gold. Others fancied elaborate armor studded with gemstones or tall pointed hats speckled with stars. There were women among them dressed in gowns of surpassing loveliness. Shafts of sunlight slanted through the windows of stained glass and the air was alive with the most beautiful music she had ever heard. A uh, kingly man in rich robes rose when he saw her and smiled. Daenerys of House Targaryen, be welcome. Come and share the food of forever. We are the undying of Karth. Long have we awaited you, said a woman beside him, clad in rose and silver. Uh, and then it goes on, she says, A thousand years ago we knew, and we have been waiting for you all this time. We sent the comet to show you the way. And then it goes on to say... Um, Shall we teach you the secret speech of dragonkind? Come, come. Now, obviously, this is an illusion, and it's not real, but you have to wonder where the uh, Undying got all these images from. It almost seems like their version of a memory of the Great Empire of the Dawn. We have these magical armor with gemstones and wizards and beautiful people and beautiful music. It, it almost seems like they're trying to recall some sort of image of that. It's like they had a specific idea of what would convince her. And they're like, hey, let's try to look like her ancestors or let's try to make this convincing in some way. And they may have been drawing from some actual knowledge that they have of these ancient people and just trying to co-opt it to That's make right. itself, make them look like that this is, that there are those descendants. Uh, but yes, of course, as we know, the House of the Undying was a big fake. But it doesn't mean that they didn't borrow real images, right. real memories, real things from ancient past. And then we've also got the Tourmaline Brotherhood in Karth who, as everyone knows, is uh, a group of monks founded on the wisdom and writings of the Tourmaline Emperor from the Great Empire of the Dawn. <laughs> everyone, <knows> <laughs> everyone knows that. Okay, so we have a question from Corey Evans, who wants us to discuss the Long Night 
link to the blood betrayal. Uh, the question, with what we know about the origin of the others, how do you think their creation, the Long Night original, and the blood betrayal are linked, if at all? We definitely talked about the possibility of these links, but maybe we didn't go into enough detail, so that's a good time to do that here. Um, LML, I'll let you uh, take the lead on this. Oh, let me unmute my microphone first. Uh, <laughs> that's so, Origin of the Others and the Creation of the Long Night. That's a very good puzzle because even my theory that talks about uh, moon meteors coming and causing the long night doesn't really have an easy explanation for where the others came from. Now, we did sort of touch on the idea that there was maybe something about the long night and the magical darkness which enabled certain creatures to become more powerful. Uh, but I actually tend to think the origin of the others might have something to do with the Night's King. I, I don't think that the Night's King story occurs after the Long Night, but instead during. And that's not my original idea either. A lot of people think, well, maybe he was the 13th Lord Commander because he was the last hero. And his 12 buddies that died, to him, you know, he named himself the 13th in honor of them or, or whoever. Or maybe the Night's Watch started a little bit before the Long Night. We don't know. Maybe there was 13 commanders that died during the Long Night because they were fighting the others. And, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. die when you do that. Uh, so basically what I'm saying is that the Knights King was sacrificing to the others with the Knights Queen. And we know that Craster sacrifices to the others by giving them his male babies to then be turned into others. And so it's very likely that Knights Queen and Knights King were in fact making others. They may have been the first to do that or they may not have. It's hard to say. And there's a whole side topic about what was this moon pale woman with cold skin she couldn't have been an other because I don't think a human could actually have sex with an other. They're literally too cold. And she couldn't have been a corpse because you can't have children with a corpse. So maybe she was more like Melisandre, sort of an ice priestess, you know, a transformed person. And maybe that's how you birth children that can be turned into ice demons because they had an icy element from the mm. corpse queen or whatever. But bit of as far as the blood betrayal itself being a cause of the long night, a direct cause, it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to be too specific about that. And what I mean is it's, I don't, I, it's, I find it hard to imagine that the very act of the bloodstone emperor overthrowing his sibling, the Amethyst Empress right. is somehow directly triggered it. I think it would be no. things he did in his reign or maybe yeah. something very specific. Yeah. Um, not like, Oh, that she's no longer on the throne, boom, inst, you know, instant eternal night. Uh, although it is possible, it's possible that George's idea of the darkness is that it's being held at bay by civilization or by, it's a metaphor for civilization falling because, you know, bad leaders got in charge. Um, but it could be more that something more magically literal, like the darkness was only being held at bay by the power of these gemstone emperors. And then when that power was broken by the blood betrayal, the darkness rushed in and uh, took over um, something along those lines. So I, I think that's possible too. It may be that the, the question is, is being asked in light of my specific theory about the moon meteors. And in that case, it gets down to the question of, well, if the moon breaking is the cause of the long night, how do human sorcerers have any part in steering a comet into a moon. And I do have ideas about that. Uh, it's kind of a whole theory, you know, that we probably can't go into here. Uh, but the idea is that, um, again, it goes back to this question of original sin. If there was somebody who did something awful to cause a long night, it should be a human and it should be some sort of an act of hubris. So 
Hmm. For example, the, the question came about early in my theory process. Well, did this meteor impact, did it just happen and cause a long night and people just dealt with the fallout? Or is this a Garden of Eden kind of thing where man did something to bring it on, an original sin? And mm. originally, I thought that, well, it must have just happened because sorcerers can't steer comets into the moon. But as I kept going on, I keep finding this theme of the person who challenges God. And that really makes you think that it was a person that did something that literally broke the moon. And in the Azor High story, we're told that the moon cracked right when he stabbed Nissa Nissa with Lightbringer. So we're, there's a tie to this act of blood magic, which is what Lightbringer was, and the moon cracking. And that's the comparison between the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor High. They both essentially are using blood magic and committing blood magic. And I think they might even be the same person or a father-son type of a thing. Who knows? But I definitely think that the blood betrayal, if it is actually something that caused the long night, then it must have been some sort of horrific blood magic ceremony that somehow interacts with the skies or whatever. Yeah, big oops. Oops, I didn't mean to go that far. <laughs> I didn't mean to break the moon. Whoops. Yeah, there's a hint about that where Danny sees the comet one time and she's like, man, it's so big and so low, I could almost reach out and touch it. Oh, it yeah. gives you this idea of like <laughs> a sorcerer somehow touching a comet. Try I'm not sure how it. you would bind a comet to your will, though. You'd have to have like a comet binder horn. <laughs> if only comet and dragons were synonymous somehow. Maybe. <laughs> yes, for more on those concepts and the related <laughs> ideas, check out LML Show <laughs> for sure. Okay, so we've got maybe about, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this going for about 15 more minutes. It's getting close to the two-hour mark. We don't want to go, we'll go over that a little bit, but not too far. So several people asked the question about how both all this great empire, the Dawn stuff, but also the Cthulhu slash Lovecraft references, which are both all over the place in the ancient backstory, as well as specifically in this great empire, the Dawn stuff. How is that going to actually interact with the Song of Ice and Fire? That's what people want to know more, want us to clarify more how this is all relevant other than just being cool backstory. And one particular question that, uh, that's, that's good to point out, ask is how does this all fit into the human heart and conflict idea? Personally, I don't think it fits into the human heart and conflict idea a whole lot, although it's certainly the, the Lovecraft's, one of his major themes is uh, fear and being helpless and being driven to do things based on hidden knowledge that no one else has. And there's definitely some of that going on with some of these magical secrets in that. So I, don't, I would say it doesn't directly speak to that. It just is a complement to that. It, it works together to amplify that effect because conflict, human conflict is certainly magnified by real world stresses. You know, if you have a difficult decision to make in life, it's just harder when you have, you know, monsters beating down your door. <laughs> so if I could say something about this, what I would say is that the human heart in conflict is the essence of the story. But the essence of fantasy as a genre, as uh, Brandon Sanderson often likes to point out on his very excellent Writing Excuses podcast, fantasy is all about awe, about inspiring awe. And people want to see cool shit. They want to see dragon riders. They want to see sorcery. But that's not a story. And that's kind of what Martin is saying. He's like, look, you can have all that stuff, but at the middle is these, these character conflicts. But that doesn't mean that he's not a fantasy writer trying to make really cool fantasy ideas. So the question really comes down to how does he use these 
really strange Lovecraftian elements to drive the conflict of the characters. And I think that's what you were talking about as far as terror. That's kind yes. of the main theme in Lovecraft is uh, the feeling of smallness. There's these forces that are bigger than you that you can't do anything about and they're terrorizing. And I think there's, he's definitely drawing some of those elements into yeah. the others and, you know, the dragons and things like that. And certainly, I mean, this is thing I talked about in the Aziz versus chapter uh, that where I covered the prologue of Game of Thrones. We have this initial character, Garrod, who sees something so terrifying that he breaks, it, it breaks him. He breaks his vows. He runs away and hides. He's just so terrified and he knows no one will believe him because it's just such an outlandish story. I was attacked by the others. You know, at the time that seemed ridiculous for him to explain to everyone else. And, you know, you saw how Alistair Thorne was treated by a court when he brought a hand, you know, he almost, I mean, his proof had rotted away by the time he got there, but he was laughed at. So that's right down the middle Lovecraft right there. Someone who sees something so terrible that it drives, terrible that it drives them mad and they can't handle it. And it gets them, you know, they just disappear as a human being. Basically they become something else. And I don't mean literally they transform into some other being. I mean that they're no longer human because they're just, their mind is broken by the fear that they've seen. And that is just right there. Chapter one, <laughs> that's, that's a Lovecraft theme right there. So, so that's it, a, that's I just wanted to compliment you. I think that's a really great insight that you had as far as uh, those those elements right in the prologue. And I think, as you were about to say, like it's a good a good clue that Lovecraft ideas and Lovecraft elements are not fringe elements in a Song of Ice and Fire. This is a main source of influence, just as much as Tolkien or other things. And in fact, what I think George is saying by bringing Lovecraft ideas into his own mythos and basically just using them. Like the deep ones, they're not really even any different. He just ripped that straight out of Lovecraft the same way every fantasy writer rips elves and orcs out of Tolkien who ripped it out of Norse mythology. So the point is that George is essentially ele elevating Lovecraft ideas into the pantheon of universal fantasy and mythological concepts that anybody can access to and make their own version of. So I've heard it said a lot of times on the internet, oh, that's just a Lovecraft idea. That's just a nod to Lovecraft. It's not important. Some of these things might just be background noise and interest, like I don't, you know, the, the toad aisle or whatever. I don't know if we'll ever go there or, or it'll be important. But at the same time, you can't assume that because something is a Lovecraft idea, it's tangential and it's just a, a little nod because he uses ideas from Tolkien and world mythology and they go right into the important parts of the story. And Lovecraft is not really, he's not treating Lovecraft any different than any of those other influences. This is so, and there are so many, just overwhelming number of Lovecraft references. We talked about the strange stones, some of these other things. Let me just throw a few more out there. Sarnor, that is straight Lovecraft. Ib was in one of his stories. Kadath, the frozen waste of Kadath, that's straight from Lovecraft. Carcosa, which was also used in True Detective, that's Lovecraft. The Deep Ones, the Old Ones, the Church of Starry Wisdom is Lovecraft. Nyalar, Nyalar, ah, I never know how to say this name. <laughs> Nyar Lathotep, aka the Crawling Chaos, uh, also featured in the story Hunter in the Dark. That's these are all direct references. From I could talk about this for a long time, but I won't because I know a lot of people just maybe aren't that familiar with Lovecraft, and it's maybe not as super interesting to you. It's fun to know the source, but if you don't know Lovecraft, maybe this isn't as interesting. So I'm going to leave that here. But I'm going to give you a way to find more. We have a, a listener watching her named Silas Toms. And he has a site devoted to 
picking out Lovecraft connections within A Song of Ice and Fire. It's called The Gods of Terror, or not the, sorry, godsofterror.tumblr.com. Good site, good read, very fun. You get a little more insight into where these things are coming from. Yeah, shout out to Silas Toms. He's one of my patrons too. Oh, very good, very good. So meanwhile, in real life, uh, there was also a Roman emperor who, who turned away from the true god, the true gods, because of course the, the Roman gods were the true gods, <laughs> to worship a black stone meteorite. Uh, how about that? There's also some examples of, uh, there was also some a sect of Islam that worshiped a uh, black meteorite as well. But this Roman emperor, after his death, he was called Elagabulus, which was the name of a Syro, meaning Syrian, Syrian Roman god. He took that name. He, he elevated himself to the level of a deity, which is kind of what Euron is doing. And that's kind of neat to see these things reflected there. So yep. more real world influence on this story. The worship of a black stone is not just a fantasy thing. It happened in real life. Right. So, of course, in Mecca, we have the Kaaba stone. Uh, which is a black stone that some people think is a meteorite. And then the ancient Egyptians had a concept of something called the Benben, which was essentially um, the original was thought to be a meteorite. And in terms of symbolism, it's like star seed that falls down to heaven. And it's the little capstone that they put on top of all of their obelisks and pyramids. So the idea of worshiping meteorites, very old, very widespread, and it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, it's pretty damn impressive when something falls out of the sky and then lands on the earth with this giant conflagration and a bang and all the rest. And then if you can find a little bit of the actual meteorite, that thing is heavy and shiny and weird and not really like anything else that you've seen. So yeah. here's um, OK. So let's take some questions that we in our dwindling time here. We Ashea gathered a bunch of questions for us from from the chat room here and I've been perusing them. Uh, off and on while when you've taken your turns to talk. Found a couple of really good ones. Here's one from Plexa Bertrand. Good name there. If Danis the Dreamer led, um, you know, and her father led a branch of the Valyrians away from, uh, well, Targaryens really, away from their spot in the Freehold because of a dream, maybe something else happened along those lines. Maybe someone in, the, say, the Amethyst Empress or one of her descendants or somebody in the Great Empire of the Dawn had a similar foretelling of whatever oh. doom happened to oh. the Great Empire, whatever oh. caused the shadow to form. That is a really good thought. I like that, yeah. That is really neat. I, I, don't, I think that's very possible. I like to talk about the Danes as Amethyst Empress Loyalists because I imagine that the Great Empire of the Dawn would have already established colonies on Westeros when the Long Night fell to build that stone fortress. So it seems to me like the Bloodstone Emperor probably came to Westeros or, you know, Zora High or somebody with the sword so that those stories can link up. So the idea of the native Westeros, not the native Westerosi, but the Great Empire of the Dawn colonists that were in Westeros, which would be House Dane and Hightower, perhaps they were loyal to the Amethyst Empress and fought against the Bloodstone Emperor because we're given this whole idea of the first Hightowers throwing down the dragons at Battle Isle. Uh, you know, so maybe there was those, like we said in the original episode, Maybe that was them opposing the original Dragon Lords. Mm. So. We've got a couple of questions. That's a, a very good answers there. Um, here's some question. Here's some question. Here is a question from Jantony Riv Wolf High Iron Jade Vickery. What a great name. Uh, so if the five forts were constructed before the Long Night, what were they built to defend against? It couldn't have been the others. And he suggests maybe the deep ones. The problem is there, it's a bit inland. So I'm not sure it could be the deep ones. But of course, it's possible the sea 
you know, covered a different area back then. It's always possible, but more likely to think that the sea has covered more rather than receded, but it's certainly possible. Do you have any thoughts there? Um, I mean, yeah, the lion and night demons are the common, or, or would be the easy answer, I suppose, but um, that's a tough one. Yeah, if they were built before the long night, yes, there was some sort of menace that they were actively so I, th I think that the sea level is rising um, and I think that the planet is warming and heating up because if you look at um, if you look at the map, you see the dry deep and the red waste and the uh, shrinking sea and all these other drying out areas in the east. And that is consistent with global temperatures raising. I think that George Martin is generally copying Earth's timeline with the Great Empire of the Dawn being like Atlantis 10,000 years ago. And over the last 10,000 years, Earth has been warming pretty steadily. And then the last thing about that is in the Thousand Islands, there are stone faces and idols that are underwater, and you can only see them at the very lowest tide. So it's, uh, it's possible that those were carved when sea level was a little bit lower. Oh, right on. And okay. the Arm of Doran also indicates oh, yes. sea level. Definitely, definitely. Okay, here's another question, or quick one from Jantony Riv Wolf High Iron Jade Vickery, and I was trying to remember where is that? Why is that name so familiar? I know I've seen it before, but now this question rem reminds me of where it's very specifically from. Do you folks read any other George R. R. Martin stories? Dying of the Light is one of my favorites. If those in the know hadn't noticed, yes, that name is a reference to Dying of the Light. Yes, now I remember. I've read Dying of the Light, and Dying of the Light is my favorite of George's non-A Song of Ice and Fire books. It's awesome. Highly recommended. I won't describe it because we're running short on time. But David, do you have a favorite of George R. George's non A Song of Ice and Fire material? Yeah, it, it's called. Um, uh, oh God, what's the name Wait, of it? What's the? Can you describe it? I might know the name. Yeah, it's it's the. Um, well, Bitter Blooms is one of my favorites. Um, oh. But the one I'm talking about, I can't believe I can't remember this. It's got tons of astronomy in it. It's it's the one with the girl who's a wanderer between worlds. And she comes to this one planet. Uh, is it? Um, uh, come back to it. I don't want to sit here and stammer. Okay, cool. I'll look it up real quick. Mark Perez wants to know what is our favorite subjects to discuss on Westeros.org? Well, you've been discussing a lot of these things recently. You started some threads there, and I've noticed that. That's cool. Uh, yep. Personally, I like to discuss historical subjects generally, digging into timelines and bloodlines and, and um, not timelines, but uh, sorry, family trees. That was, I, I really like to spend a lot of time discussing like the Stark family tree. That was one I did. I haven't been as active on Westeros.org anymore. I mostly focus on writing episodes and, and working on the non-writing aspects of history of Westeros, but I do still peruse the threads there. But those are the ones I would, you know, kind of head towards i look for those yeah i'm on i'm on westeros all the time i every time i put out a new uh episode i make a post on westeros and we discuss it and uh that's where all of my essays and projects came out of is westeros.org so i owe pretty much my whole thing to them and i definitely have to say that it's pretty much my favorite place to discuss i like the format uh it kind of moves a little slower than reddit so the discussions could get a little deeper you know reddit takes off really quick and then it's done in a couple days um so and that's good for different kinds of discussions uh, for the deeper sort of stuff that I like to talk about. I feel like right Westeros.org is really awesome. Definitely. Uh, here's a question from Enoise1. Uh, sorry if I said that wrong. Do you think Ashai was always open to all forms of magic without limit or just after the long night or whatever caused it to decline? Hmm, very good question. I would guess that it has to have some sort of history rooted in magic, but maybe not to the extent that it is now. Uh, that may be the, 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 the shadow and all that developing 
if that was a thing that came along later, that might be where some of that magic is drawn from or why it attracted people from, you know, with a magical inclination. Yeah, so, yeah. I've, I've wondered about this too, for sure, because it could be that the meteor impact, you know, according to my theory, of course, uh, that the meteor impact brought the magic that's haunting a shy right now. But if you look at the heart of winter, the heart of winter also seems to be magical and the wall is a hinge of the world. So I've actually speculated that um, a shy might have been like the heart of summer because it's on the equator. So basically think of the heart of summer in that it's like a source of magic that is fiery in nature um, before it was shadowed and corrupted. We've talked about all the evidence for volcanic activity around a shy. So I've actually, yeah, I've wondered if maybe we used to have a heart of winter and a heart of summer and they were both highly magical, but then a shy got messed up. And so now it's like the shadowy version of fire magic. It's, it's not summer anymore. It's like a inverted, you know, summer. Yeah. Very like the lion of night is an inverted solar figure. Like a lion is a solar animal, but it's the lion of night. It's hinting at this idea of a dark sun, which mm. actually has some really cool parallels in Mesoamerican uh, myth. There's uh, there's a god called um, <clears throat> the jaguar god of night and war, and he's a night sun character. Uh, and that story, the George R. Martin story I was looking for, is called the Lonely Songs of Laren Dor. And that is a great story. The whole thing is available online. It's like a 45-minute read, and I mm. definitely recommend that. It's pure mythical astronomy. There's faces that are, take up the whole sky and the concept of the seven wanderers, and the girl in the story represents the comet. It's, it's like a lot of the astronomy ideas in A Song of Ice and Fire in a sort of uh, a basic form, you know, in that story. Right on. Okay, a couple more questions. Um, if the high from Chaco Daco, if the high towers are descendants of the anti Bloodstone Emperor, what would happen if they're anti dragon plot? Let's say he, I guess he's assuming that perhaps they're involved with the Maesters and their anti magic stuff. What if this is somehow related to this ancient rivalry? Like as if this is what they were doing back about tens of thousands of years ago and they're still playing that role now. That's an interesting idea. I had not considered that at all. It's, that's a neat idea. I think it's possible. Um, it, it'd be pretty obscure, but it's possible. Yeah, it could be. Well, the High Towers do have. We're given the indication that they have a, a pretty unbroken tradition. They've been associated with magic and stuff all the way back to their earliest days. So it is possible that they carry on uh, some traditions of sort of secret knowledge. You know, the guardians of certain knowledge that they don't share with everybody. And it's possible that uh, their experience with the Bloodstone Emperor left them, you know, <laughs> feeling a little burnt. <laughs> that's that makes a little bit of sense uh melanie patrick says while we're talking about dragons i was wondering if the valerians had literal blood of the dragon considering the reptilian features of some of the miscarried and deformed babies born to targaryens like say visenya the child of rhaenyra and daenerys's own rego yes i do think that's what it means i think that is a very strong uh clue there's yeah. lizard men in the Far East and in Sothorius too, like uh, eyeless men that have scales and winged men, I think, in the, in the Far East. So, yeah, I think George wants to give us, give us that idea. Yeah. Now we have Samid Sand asking, do we think certain Valerian families were specialized in certain magic slash abilities? Definitely. Uh, as we talked about with the potential specialization among dragons and the fact that the Targaryens don't seem to have any sorcery, whereas we hear a lot about sorcery in the Freehold, Definitely. I think they would probably be very jealous of their own secrets. They wouldn't go sharing their special magical knowledge with the other powerful Valyrian families that they're rivals with. Yeah, so I think, we yeah. Talking about. 
so that fits very well into that. It isn't just the dragons. It applies to all their secrets. Um, okay, let's do this. One last question. Dan Nesluzen, what is your opinion on the bones of Naga, actual sea dragon bones or the remains of a werewood ship? <laughs> uh, possibly, you know, Great Empire of the Dawn related, uh, something like that. <clears throat> yes. We both have thoughts on this. You go ahead. Well, so my last uh, Grey King episode talked all about that. And in particular, that idea of the weirwood boat came from somebody on your forums that I talked to way back in the day. Um, but oh, yes, okay. I think it's a weirwood boat. And I do, th uh, when Victorian sees the ribs, he says they were uh, as taller than a Droman's mast or twice mm -hmm. as tall as a Droman's mast, which means this is the inverted hull of the boat, if that's what it is. That's a really, really big boat. That's like Noah's Ark made of weirwood. So that's definitely the kind of boat that you could imagine crossing a very long sea travel. If, you know, we, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is the east from a shy idea. The idea that maybe instead of going west from a shy to Westeros, that they went east and they went around the other way and came uh, on the Sunset Sea on the west coast of Westeros, because all these places are in the southwest. So a lot of people have brought that up. Right on. Okay. Well, I think that is all the time we have. There were, unfortunately, short answers. We get uh, maybe. Short answer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank everyone for tuning in live today. If you're hearing this later, thanks for tuning in at all. We both appreciate it. Ashea as well. This is the most people we've had involved in an episode. I set aside some time originally to talk about the episode creation process. We just didn't have time for that. I decided to set that aside to rather to, just to take more questions. But I do want to throw a quick shout out to people. The fact that we've had more and more people involved with every episode. This is, you know, what we do full time. But there are a lot of people in the community that help us out, that make the show better. We really appreciate all the help. This is, as always, a community effort. And the biggest help we get in terms of our day-to-day, -day, not in terms of content, is from Patreon. Both LML show and our show really rely on the support of the community from a financial perspective so we can focus on this full-time and put a lot of effort into it. Otherwise, we would have to you know, be doing side jobs and stuff to, to eat. Well, <laughs> to pay I, I, uh, I have two other jobs, so speak for yourself there, buddy. Right on. Well, that's what I mean. The more your support you get, the less you'll have to do all that. But let's put it this way. My wife wouldn't put up with me spending so much time on this if it weren't bringing in something to contribute because she works really hard, so... Very good, very good. So that is important to give credit where credit's due, and and a lot of people help us with this. Both of our shows rely on Patreon. Um, you can find us both there, and we've got different reward levels to get you uh, little benefits back. And of course, we answered a lot of questions from patrons today, but we also took questions from non-patrons. So we don't just favor one over the other, but of course, we are very appreciative of people who help us in any way, whether it's just spreading the word about the show, liking us on iTunes, leaving reviews, and that goes for both of our shows. Yep. So thanks to everybody. David, um, you've already said what's next for you, but remind yeah, everyone uh, where to find you. Lucifer means lightbringer.com. Couldn't be any easier. Right on. Okay, so let me give some specifics. Thank you to our peers of the realm, including the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Cabethian Frozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North, 
Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Our powers beyond the realm include King Beyond the Wall, Roanick Cantrell, who is wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, recently did battle against a very mysterious clan of wildlings with silver hair and jade eyes. Rumors from local from the locals indicate that they may descend from somewhere to the far east. Very interesting. Mm. Hmm. Also, shout outs to our small count. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped once. Our new patron, rather our new title from an existing patron, Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos, Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea, and Grand Cardinal of the Temple of Yogg-Sapas. Apparently I was pronouncing part of that wrong before, but the Sea Lord's new uh, level has this is a new title created by uh, Aurelius there. He came up with this idea and it comes with a shout out for what the Sea Lord is doing up there in Bravos. He's holding growing, he's growing called... lemon trees. <laughs> yes, of course. That's all he does is grow lemons, tons of them. We have what's called what he's calling a celebration of knowledge held throughout the city, wherein the citizens of Bravos are encouraged to give thanks for the wisdom which has made the city flourish. Priests of Yog Sothoth walk the streets telling tales to any who will listen, some tales more true than others. And the celebration is then concluded with a great feast at the Temple of the Gate, the Key, and the Garden. Well said. That's cool. That's awesome. Also, thanks to our small council, Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers. Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Cleverer, Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty remains Lord of the Bread Fort. Alicia Everast- Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lauren Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Vallant is Lady of Swine Harbor. Lord Baron of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Warpool Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods has the motto, Our Roots Run Deep. And Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is sworn alesmith to Hal Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithmancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. And patron of Mythical Astronomy Advice and Fun. Very cool. All right. All these cross patrons here. Uh, we also have thanks for King Justice, King's Justice, rather, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate, as well as the commander of our Kingsguard, Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. And of course, last but not least, the history of Westeros' Night's Watch is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield. Uh, first Builder Liana Kelly, Lady of the Steelhold, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, who got a question in there today. Yeah. Thanks to all the other patrons whose time, whose name I don't have time to read. There are many of you to thank, and we are always appreciative of what you enable us to do here. So we will, like I said, be back in a few weeks with our episode on Dreams and Dreamers. We can't wait to bring that to you. More Supernaturals type stuff. That's always fun. 
And I want to say thanks again to LML for working on this episode with us. It's been a great success. It's been the, re the response has been from the community has been really positive. We've gotten a lot of great feedback and that's always motivating and, and fun. So thanks to everyone who took the time to leave us a positive comment, to tweet at us questions, send us questions through email, liking us on Facebook, all those great ways that you can support us on social media, help the show get a little more exposure. And do the same things for David. You know, his show is uh, obviously newer, so the exposure helps him a lot as well. Yeah, I'm working on like a short 10 minute video that's kind of like the super core nuts and bolts of the theory so that people can share it around. But the first episode works really well as an introduction. So just share the website, tell people there's some crazy thing about mythology and comets and it's worth reading, you know, late one night. And if you didn't get your question answered, hang on to it. Maybe hold on to it for another uh, Q&A. We, we do these periodically. So, you know, when we do a more free-for-all open type Q&A, these questions will be appropriate for the that type of format. So you'll have your chance at another time. Um, if, so that is that. We'll say goodbye for now. And we can't wait to see you guys next time for more fun delving into the world of Ice and Fire and A Song of Ice and Fire proper. It's endless, the things we can do, and we'll be back. Yep. Thanks, Thanks again, everybody. everybody. See you later. Until next time, Valor Morgulis. Adios.